0: At you, I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella!
1: Suck on this. Everybody, this is Wrong Real episode 468. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. But this is very appropriate for this episode. We also tackle everything from Captain Kirk to Douglas Sirk. And today we're going to be talking about Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And I've got two Star Trek besties, some just fanatics on this topic, Becca Deanna and Adam Rakoff, who have been on this podcast at least five or six times talking to star trek in the past so guys welcome back to wrong real oh
2: thank you well, Thanks, back in. it's been it's uh, to way too that. long
1: as you just mentioned it's been eight months since what was your last appearance on wrong real
2: oh scenes from a marriage in october last october you.
1: well for all the fine yeah. people out there catches up what is going on in your life what podcasts have you appeared on what's going on in the world of sony all that good stuff
2: oh well mostly this year has been focused on my career so movies so i've just i work at sony pictures and it's just been we've had massive uh a, a re- amount of movie releases this year so we were gearing up for um men in black international um we're gearing up for spider-man far from home which comes out july 2nd i don't know if this episode will post before then cause i know you're a little backlogged
1: i've got one ahead of y'all but i can get it up before then no problem
2: Okay, cool. And then we have Angry Birds 2. We have Charlie's Angels. We have Jumaji. We have an insane amount of movies coming out this year, an insane amount of movies coming out next year. And we even have some amazing How movies.
1: How dare you not mention Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Once the upon jewel a time in Hollywood, your crown?
2: It. It's the jewel in the studio's crown. However, it's not a third-party promotional film. We're not really tying in with uh, Doritos for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I'm not personally working on the movie. Um, I uh, but I've I've got to. uh, We're working on media promotions for that movie.
1: You know, like Charlie Manson wigs or anything like that.
2: <laughs> well, it's hard with R-rated movies to get partnerships. So we're not really, uh, but there are we're getting some media promotions. And and I've seen uh, about 30 minutes of the movie. And it's amazing. And I can't wait for you to see it.
1: Well, speaking of promotions, y'all need to start selling those badass cowboy boots that Leonardo DiCaprio is wearing in the publicity still where he's leaping out of the back of the truck. When I saw the picture, I was like, those are the coolest fucking boots I've ever seen. And I bought a pair of cowboy boots online immediately, my first pair ever, but they're not nearly as cool as the ones in that pick, but I can't find those. So if y'all want to do a third party promotion selling boots, I'll be your first customer.
2: You know what though, Jamie, I can find, I could. I could find, I'll find out for you what those boots are because I'm friends with people in product placement and I could find out what the boots are and I could tell you what they are. I
1: would drink champagne out of them on my YouTube channel. I'd be so excited.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'll find out like uh, you know what the model is and where you can buy them and all that stuff oh,
1: that would be heaven uh yeah.
2: that's a great thing i i was obsessed with these glasses that cameron diaz wore in bad teacher once, and i was like please tell me these glasses and i found them on this so i could buy them so i could have them but i didn't look nearly as cool as she did so i never really wore them
1: <laughs> well i love but, glasses on girls i always think it makes them look very very attractive
2: Oh, thanks. And then, uh, I've only done one podcast appearance. This is my second one of the year, which is crazy. Cause it's June. I think I've done like almost 40 podcast appearances in the last three years and I've done two this year. So this is my second. The first one was in February. Um, I was on film baby film to do a real deep dive into the Seven seal, which was something I've wanted to do. Like my whole, like Since I got into Bergman. How
1: dare you impugn that our coverage of the film was less than a deep dive? I'm (laughs) wounded.
2: This episode was, like, a full, like, almost two hours just, like, getting into everything. We, I think we covered that one and Wild Strawberries, which was a, it was really good, but it was just, I, you know, we wanted to get into every little thing about it, so I feel like we, we uncovered everything that, I feel like if you had never seen, the, if you had just seen the movie, if you wanted to introduce yourself to Bergman as a good one, because it, I felt like we really gave, like, a good class, I think, on what that movie is about and what it means and all the behind the scenes, and I was really proud of it.
1: Very cool. Well, Mr. Rakoff catches up. How's y'all's campaign at SAG after going for Mr. Modine?
0: Yeah, we're working very hard on this. Uh, i I've, I've been uh, Matthew Modine is my producing partner and friend, and I've been sort of volunteering and helping with his campaign, helping to kind of manage certain aspects of it. We've been doing a lot of design work and fundraising and it's just uh, so much more than i ever anticipated it would be i guess that's the case with any any type of political campaign but uh, i didn't know quite what i was getting myself <laughs> into initially but uh, it's going well we're getting lots and lots of well-known actors to um endorse matthew's candidacy so uh, hopefully uh, when voting begins at the end of july we'll be getting lots of votes for mr modine it's a about a month uh, voting they they allow members oh. of sag uh 30 days to submit their ballots and i think because actors are always working on traveling they need to give them you know ample time to... Who's
1: your best celebrity endorsement so far? I see you occasionally post uh, uh, certain uh, people yeah. giving them a shout out.
0: Yeah there's there are, we're trying to get a really diverse group. We have Liam Neeson who is nice, obviously a, fuck yeah. a big name. I will find um, you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, we have a lot of um, veteran actors, you know, actors that have been doing this for 30, 40 years backing um, Matthew, which is great. I think they see a lot of the problems that have been, um, you know, around and forming for decades. And they just know that a lot of change is, is necessary. Um, one, of the, one of the big problems uh, and Deadline did a, a big story about this. It's, it's out there. But there's over $48 million in residual checks in a room that's, that have yet to be um, given to their owners. They they can't find who they belong to. They can't find the the, the individuals. And that's just kind of weird, you know, it's a little, little iffy. But if you think about it, look how much money, you know, even interest on – forty eight million dollars. Has somebody be. just
1: been like <laughs> feeding like the body parts of the actors to other actors to keep them going well what, what, what was that movie where it's yeah. like it's people like Right. I'm, uh toilet <laughs> like, green. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> where, yeah. where 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 have all these actors gone to? <laughs> yeah. Well some of them are dead. <laughs> some of them are owed to estates or heirs of, of those actors. So that's obviously a problem that can happen. It's very it's legitimate. But even Matthew had checks in this uh, in this 48 million that were never delivered to him. Now that's, that's very strange because they obviously know where to send him his, his bill for his dues. Every oh yeah, year. yeah, yeah. No, so, it sounds
1: like a classic you know. clusterfuck of just yeah. complete bureaucratic, bureaucratic mismanagement.
0: Yeah. Bad management, bad, you know, accounting, all of the above, just, you know, it, the whole, the, it, it needs a, it needs new leadership. So we're working towards that goal. And, uh, and I also have a, a project that I think I've mentioned previously called Trump Bites that I've been helping to produce with uh, Mr. Bill Plimpton. And uh, we have tomorrow night a big event at the IFC Center here in New York where it's all six of the episodes we've produced so far will be screening. Um, uh, and Mr. Plimpton as well as the, the two show creators. Have um, the
1: pitchforks from the Putin uh, cartoon been put away at this point? Because last year uh, things got, yeah. a little, got a little a little weird.
0: Yeah, they, oh. they resurface from time to time. And it's very. These strange. Uh, th- there was an episode where Bill had uh, Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump, um, you know, be- involved in a bromance. If yeah, you they will. went on a date. And, yeah, exactly. They went on a friendly date and had some fun together, enjoyed each other's company. So <laughs> there were some individuals that were not so happy with that. And. We got a lot of backlash, but it also helped uh, that episode go viral. It had well, I remember I think, on
1: Twitter got like millions of views just on Twitter alone. Like I have no idea how many yeah. how many views it got on the New York Times oh site, gosh. but it went yeah. straight up fucking viral.
0: Yeah, like one tweet alone. If you know when you embed the video yeah. in the tweet, yeah. one tweet alone had 1.5 million views within the tweet, in that individual tweet. So that means that tweet had far you know multiple millions of impressions. That's just how many people times people. Watch the video, yeah, and and since these were also on the New York Times web, website, they got tens of millions of views there as well. So it was, uh, it really did in many ways. It, it it helped us, but it also it hurt us in in the sense that um, it was really hard to defend against that. But we knew we were up against it. Whenever you go after a political figure, you're gonna you're gonna have backlash uh, regardless of who you're <laughs> going after. But um, but we have three brand new episodes which are currently screening at the IFC Center before every. Um, actually, well, one episode of these three new episodes has been screening each week for the past uh, three weeks. Um, and that this is actually qualifying them for for the Oscars. Oh, so cool. this That's is fun. our kind yeah. of Academy Award qualifying run. So we'll see if um, you know being that the Oscars, this next Oscar camp season will be the last one before the um the election next year. Um, these could be very timely to Academy voters and they might decide that it's worth, you know, singling them out and recognizing them purely for political reasons. So we're going to try to do everything we can. Play that card as well as you can. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, we won the Webby award for pretty much the same reasons we think that they chose. It's a very international group of individuals that are on that um, committee. So we think that, um, a, you know, Trump is not popular in Europe and other parts of the world, but B, we felt that, that it was a very timely topic for them versus some of the other content that we were up against for best uh, animated series. They were like kids' shows on Netflix. Paw Patrol, you know, maybe, all the way. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff. So that obviously, it might have good animation. It might be well-produced, but it, did, it wasn't saying anything, you know, about the current state of the world or country or whatever. So maybe... The, the that angle is, was helpful for that award. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. But um, I'll be there tomorrow night for that event. I don't know if you're around, James, but you're certainly uh, invited if you can.
1: It was funny. <laughs> it's like make... how I don't ever think of you as like some sort of political animal, but here you are up to your fucking elbows on two political fronts. I know. <laughs> political I know. Work. So uh, I who knows what, know what the where... future might yeah. yield for Mr. Adam Rakoff?
0: <laughs> I don't know where I get how I get sucked into these things I just, I just <laughs> uh, I'm a pretty middle of the row guy normally I mean, Oh, but, I'm people, but the wheels person, need to be greased so. and people that yeah. are
1: doing things you know they, uh, you, yeah. you are the consummate wheel greaser whether it's Kickstarter or politics or whatever the case might be
2: yeah. all that they've loved all that they've fought for all that they've stood for will now be put to the
0: test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir. The word is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Thing bird of prey, She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's non-responsive. For a sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star
1: Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The adventure continues. Well, let's switch gears. Let's go. Let's wind the clock back to 1984. And what's interesting about Search for Spock is that I think it's easy to overlook sometimes how these original series cast member movies were very episodic and kind of kept the story, kept passing the baton from one movie to another. And we can debate which ones are the strongest or the weakest, and that always seems to be in a state of flux. But Becky, since you are a diehard True Blue Trek fanatic, for people out there who might think that search for Spock perhaps is one of the lesser entries for the original crew. How would you counter like make, make the case for search for Spock and why it has a special meaning for Becky Deanna?
2: Oh my gosh. So many things. So I think this film gets the bad rap for being in as one of the, um, odd numbered films. For, <laughs> for Star Trek. There are so many things that are amazing about this film. One, this is uh, just as historically it's Leonard Nimoy's directorial debut, um, but it, there's so much to this film. This film has a, a real sense of loss. Um, Kirk is dealing with the loss of his friend um, and we get to see uh, Kirk probably in his best uh, acting uh, scene. Actually, I think his best acting scene is in the end of Wrath when he chokes up and um, when he's, yes, when he's doing, uh, when he's making a speech at Spock's funeral. But I think his second and arguably could be his best is that scene where he finds out his son David has died and he falls back and he misses the chair and that was his idea to do that. I thought that was an extraordinary sequence. Um, So if you want to see uh, Bill Shatner at his best. That is that I think that this, that's definitely, uh, one of his best performances ever. Um, also just learning more about, uh, the, the Vulcan rituals. I think it's got a lot of, um, mysticism around it. We learn a little bit more about Pomfar and this, just the, some of the stuff at the end, uh, with the rituals, um, the, uh, enterprise, which is, uh, it's, it's shown that the enterprise, the ship, uh, uh, NCC 1701 has been in the five year mission and throughout all these films, and it is that destroyed in this film. And it's really a heartbreaking sequence, and it's really a beautiful sequence too. So I think that's just in itself um, a huge element to this film. That's that's uh, historic. Um, Did you catch and his bad think, boy in
1: the theater as a little girl?
2: Yeah, I was seven. So my parent, my dad <laughs> is a. He, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my father is a huge Star Trek fan. He introduced me to Star Trek when I was five. And so I got, you know, he took me to see everything he wanted to see when I was growing up. I didn't get uh, censored from anything. But of course, he took me to all of the Star Trek films. Well, real quick, quick, quick a,
1: question. Yeah. I, I encounter a lot of resistance from friends and family members about uh, my kind of laissez faire attitude towards what kids should be exposed to. My attitude always is if they're having a bad experience, they'll cover their eyes or they'll turn it off, but like let them kind of self censor. As a mother and a somebody who at age five started watching wild movies in the company of your dad, do you have any strong opinions about how parents should approach what their kids get exposed to? Or is it kind of a case by case basis depending upon the kid?
2: I think it's case by case. It's funny. I think it, I think it actually changed when I became a mom really, because I think I used to be a big uh, proponent of saying, Hey, I turned out fine and I didn't get censored from anything. However, I do believe that I saw some films that are probably shouldn't have seen. Like I saw Fatal Attraction when I was nine years old. Nice. Not sure that was a film that I should have probably <laughs> been taken to. But my parents didn't even think about hiring a babysitter. They were just like, yeah, let's take our kids to whatever we want to see. And I ended up seeing a lot of stuff. And I, I think that's why I have the film history that I do and I appreciate it. But I... Personally, as a mom, I don't think I would take my daughter to see Fatal Attraction <laughs> when she's nine. Also, Hollywood isn't even in the to-
1: business of making <laughs> Fatal Attraction anymore. So it's kind of like you don't have to worry about it. It's, like, it's Pixar and Disney princesses and Marvel. So it's like Hollywood's right. like, you know what? We're going all in on kids entertainment.
2: Right. But I think it depends on who your kid is. If your kid is ready for stuff. Like I was in line at Comic-Con a few years ago and there was a kid behind me who was like – Six and he was obsessed with Walking Dead and I think it's pretty gruesome for a lot of kids and that's just a TV show and I was like oof they like that's but the kid was all in and I think if you know your kid's ready for stuff I think you, you that I think it's fine um, again I'm somebody that I said I got brought to everything and I think I turned out pretty I think I turned out pretty good. Well, that's what Bradley
1: Sinell talks about how when he was a kid in the '70s his mother would go to see the movies she wanted to see and he had yeah. no input he was just going along for the ride so we got to see all these great <laughs> '70s flicks and he ended up becoming great author and a podcaster and filmmaker, et cetera. And so that's the way I lean. But I mean, there's an incident yeah. where I was watching uh, the conjuring with my little brother and sister, as well as one of their friends when they were, must've been nine or 10 and they all had wildly different reactions. One was petrified, but fascinated. One was completely bored and fell asleep. And the other was so scared in the first five minutes that he had to leave the room and go downstairs with me and watch UFC and I was like, well, well, I, uh, clearly there's no silver bullet on whether or not the is yeah. appropriate because one's loving it, one's bored out of her mind, and the other is shitting in his pants. So, it's like, it's a, I don't, I don't know what the uh, the answer is.
2: Yeah, and I think you have to respect your kid too. Like, I my kid, my daughter's five, and I I take her like there's stuff that scares her. Like I said, we I took her to Dumbo, and you know it wasn't a great movie, but she I I was fine with it. But she uh, she got super scared and was sad like the f- million time that the mom was taken away from the the you know the baby and. There's stuff that scares her. And she got scared at the end of Coco. I mean, n- halfway through Coco, when they went to the, see all the skeletons and they went to Underworld, that scared her. So we had to leave. So there's stuff that she's not quite ready for yet. I think that she'll be ready in a few more years. I think some of the stuff is just, I think she's, um, I don't know, you know, I had a really interesting, uh, I was re-watching Star Trek uh, 3 the other, uh, yesterday, re-watching it again in the morning. And she came, woke up and she came in and she wanted to watch part of it with me. And it was the scene where Spock and... Um, And um, Krug, that where uh, is is how you say his name? I never could say his name right. The Klingon commander. And you speak
1: fluent Klingon. Lay it on us. Yeah, Krug. Krug.
2: Yeah, (laughs) they were fighting uh, right above the the, like the volcano, or like where it looks like it's lava and stuff. And she's like, "Oh my gosh, they're gonna!" She's like, "Why are they fighting?" And then she's like, "They're gonna fall." (laughs) (laughs) It was so cute. And then a minute later, she's like, "Can we turn this off? It's really scary." So. But you know, yeah. it, I it, she's interested. But I, it's just funny. Like I think if you you listen to your kid, you're I'm not gonna force you're not gonna force your kid to see something they're not if they're not scared. Then you should you know be let be like take them out. I don't think you should force them to. But if they're all in, then I think that's great. Beautiful. Take them to what they want to see.
1: Adam, anyway, Adam, as a parent, do you have any strong feelings on this or vis a vis Star Trek? What, what do you think? Emma'll be ready for some Star Trek.
0: Well, I mean, she she's a little over a little older. Um, uh, she's six, so she's. But she's still very sensitive to these things. Like, what and would be a
1: gateway drug to help her become a Trekkie?
0: Well, she—I did show her *Force Awakens* um, *Star* *Star Wars*, and she she liked it. She—I mean, the first half she likes more. It's not—it's not as scary as she says. But um, so she's a little bit familiar with *Star Wars* now. She also likes the cartoons, so she's she's into that. Um, *Star Trek*, I haven't showed her yet, but. Mostly because I've been watching like Discovery, and I just think that's far too scary for her at this point. Star I mean, Trek she, the
1: animated series, baby. Yeah, it's call, that's Colin right. Nell's name.
2: Yeah, the original we, series I think is good. It, maybe. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not. It's, some of it's, those aliens can be scary.
0: Right, but um, I did take her to. We took her to Aladdin, the new Aladdin, and um, it's you know, it's it's not a great movie, but she was really into it at some points. But other times it was just really loud and really just a little too much for her. I, I she was just had her, you know, her her head in our shoulders kind of just uh just it was too much and i just think that's a miscalculation on the part of the filmmakers if if the target audience is five six seven-year-olds and it's just i mean half the kids in the theater were like had their heads down
1: (laughs) (laughs) i was the guy who directed lock and two smoking barrels and (laughs) smash his guy fucking richie
0: (laughs) and he did some cool scenes he did some cool things with the camera during some of the chase scenes and stuff so there was some inventive um sequences in the film that were good but as a whole i thought the film just um it, it, there was really no reason for it it kind of just felt like it didn't it didn't need to exist i think it's made but,
1: 700 million worldwide so i think yeah yeah aladdin's doing just
0: fine yeah people i mean it's got very mixed reviews i think right around 50 percent. i think of rotten tomatoes so it seems like half the people like it half the people are not really into it but um you know it it's tar- as I said. The target audience is kids, I'm sh- and and or maybe it's also for adults who are really f- huge fans of the of the original movie. But anyway, my point is just that I never know. Like Becky said, I never know until I take her to a movie or search- show her a movie if she'll be um, into it or if it's too scary. Sometimes uh, movies that I think are not scary are are she just doesn't want to look at, and then other times. I'm, I'm sure she'll be terrified of something, and she doesn't seem to to be phased by it. So it, it's it's very hard to predict. Every kid's different. Every kid has a different sort of sensibility of what to what. Um, and it
1: changes and evolves really quickly
0: from so one quickly. year to the next. It does. So anyway, yeah. Well,
1: let's get back to Search for Spock. One thing I think a lot of times people overlook about Search for Spock is that it played a huge role in developing the Klingons as we assume was always their default kind of look and feel and flavor, because obviously we get a little taste of them in the uh, in the motion picture, but they were quite different in the original series. So Becky, uh, for you as someone who knows a hell of a lot about Klingons, to what degree did this movie play a role in kind of consolidating or uh, really like like locking in stone the Klingon as we understand it, at least up through like the early 2000s?
2: Well, I think they definitely had, they changed, like, they had the ridge. They changed the way they looked. Um, <clears throat> and then I think that, they, that a lot of the language developed from these movies, too. Um, the They had... Uh, was it Mark o- The was the linguist responsible for uh, creating the Klingon language. And he was also oftentimes called upon to invent the words in the Klingon language. And he invented some from um, this film for Christopher Lloyd. He actually says so funny. Uh, I had heard that, that he um, says that when he thinks of new words that he has to create. And subsequently after this film, he always uh, uh, imagines Christopher Lloyd saying them.
1: Gotcha. <laughs>
2: Which is really funny. Uh, But I think, uh, I I mean, I think that's a, that's a big part of it too. I mean, a lot of the phrases came from this movie and then like, it's funny, as soon as they make phrases in this movie and then subsequent films like six, then they go into the Klingon dictionary and like, and and that becomes, that becomes how they, they speak, but they definitely changed the way they looked in this film. Do you have more to add, Adam? Uh, I mean, yeah, and they
0: were very, they were very close to the way they looked at the opening of the motion picture. Um, in terms of of starting to build out the yeah. aesthetics on their forehead and other type, sort of add-on components to their facial features um, as as Leonard Nimoy talks about in the commentary the you know the original series they were a little more than you know they painted their skin a little darker and they mm-hmm. had a mustache maybe they were like a goatee and shirts sort of yeah. big yeah like big eyebrows but that's about it you know and they yeah and they wore kind of pirate costumes <laughs> you know kind of baggy clothes a lot clothes. of sashes <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this was really uh, uh, an attempt, and and it was Nimoy's, uh, one of Nimoy's ideas was to bring the Klingons back. You know, they could have, as he said, they could have brought in the Romulans, but they chose to sort of um, take a, uh, use this as an opportunity to make the the Klingons, who had always sort of been the Soviet Union, the kind of, uh, uh, of the Star Trek universe. You know to, to bring them back into the fold and use the genesis project this terraforming project as a as sort of an analogy for the atomic you know bomb and the the race to you know to obtain the secrets of that technology that could be this ultimate weapon and could you know essentially decide who had power in the galaxy or at least in the quadrant so the Klingons, yeah. They Christopher Lloyd was really one of the first characters to play a Klingon in the sort of modern era of of the Klingons, you know. And then, of course, within four years, Next Generation came on the air, and we had Michael Dorn as Lieutenant Worf, and that really started to expand the the mythology and the backstory of the yeah, Klingon it like the race. Yeah, late 80s and through the
1: early act. 90s really. Okay, and that's where we kind of like we see the crystallization of the Klingons as a lot of like old, older fans like to think of them, whether it's right. Worf or the, like the the two women in, in, uh, and yeah, and generations, et cetera, and so forth. Right. Who also had appeared in Deep Space Nine. But when people think of Klingons, they think of that that fully formed interpretation of the of the species or race or whatever you want
2: to call exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Christopher Lloyd played him as like really uh, temperamental and like aggressive, but then he still had that code of honor that Klingons have. So space barbarians. Um, yeah. And he had that he had that dog. I think it was the first Klingon dog I'd ever seen. So I guess the
1: only thing I don't like about the interpretation of the Klingons in this is how easy it is to zap them when they're cloaked. Like they basically eyeball it like Sulu and Kirk are like, Hey, look at that. Oh Look how funky that looks. All right, get ready, get ready. And the moment they come uncloaked, they're like, boom, they zap them. Like, well, that's not a very effective cloaking system if without instruments and without even a crew. you got like seven <laughs> people aboard the Enterprise. With your naked eye, you can pick them out.
2: <laughs> well, I'm also just like, I think they should be better at it, though, too. They're, they're like, okay, if there's like something that you can't, hey, what's that? You should always be like, a bird of prey, it's cloaking device. Like, yeah. how do you not immediately know? I feel like they're still like, huh. I what like is this that? Huh. Well, I All think right, this maybe, this maybe it's kind of
1: good, but there's no sense of urgency
0: well i think at this point in the series too they the klingons as we said hadn't really been explored i mean even that opening sequence in the motion picture doesn't involve humans at all there's no interaction there really so it's other than some of those classic original series episodes where they encountered them in their uh earlier state they um this was the first chance to sort of redefine them and redevelop so i don't I think the and and they really hadn't in the original series they had a a Romulan bird of prey, uh, in a in a a great episode where it was cloaked, but they really didn't get into the Klingons you know their cloaking technology. So this I think this is all supposed to feel new at the time, yep. And and therefore, you know, and and again if you're not looking for something out of the ordinary you wouldn't you wouldn't even notice something. And they obviously Mm -hmm. were not getting a response from the Grissom when they should have been so they were they they were uh, prepared for something you know they were prepared for something to be to be happening and you know i think it's uh and they and they later reveal too that a Klingon bird of prey can't fire while, while cloak that that's revealed in the undiscovered country so we get you know it fills in some of the the pieces to that later on
2: i think the big thing is the language though because they they really i think orcam was brought on for the second film to create like four lines of dialogue for the klingons but then he created the whole language based on this third film and and subsequently and that was that's a big uh that's Pretty historic for Klingons. Also, yeah. I like
1: how this flick really shows you why Kirk has such a bone to pick with the Klingons in the sixth movie, mm-hmm. where he's like, let them die. Like you went yeah. Kirk obviously has always been their adversary and is a mighty warrior and they he he respects his adversary. But this is the flick where it becomes really emotional and personal. And I feel that's what I like about the original cast movies is that you actually do get some passing of the baton thematically and emotionally from one movie to the next they're not just little standalone entries like episodes of a show you really get to see some evolution of the characters but speaking of evolution there's an evolution that I don't like in this with the character of uh Savick losing Kirsty Alley where do, y- where do y'all stand on uh, the, the the new the new Vulcan that we have in this I feel like she is like a, dr- a very yeah. small drop in a very large bucket compared to uh Kirstie
0: Alley
2: yeah. yeah. Go I, ahead, Adam.
0: I mean, obviously the F- Wrath of Commerce film prior to uh her joining Cheers and other uh, getting other work, her her I believe um she wasn't on Cheers yet when uh, when this when this came on the air, but she had other contractual obligations, other things that were preventing her from coming back, I believe. Um and uh you know, they found I thought Robin Curtis did a fine job. She she's wasn't adequate, Kirsten
1: but Alley. for me, I think yeah. Kirstie Alley actually yeah. might be my second favorite actor ever to play a Vulcan behind Leonard Nimoy. I, I think she nails it she's, in the second
2: movie. She's amazing. I, there's like all these. If you look, there's <clears throat> there's all these different uh, theories about why she didn't come back. Like some people like she they like. I think there's some places that say she was fear of being typecast. Other people said that. I think I've read this one book that said that she uh, demanded more money. And they're like, as soon as she demanded more money, they said, forget you. But then I also read an interview where she, another interview where she said that they offered her less money for the third one than they gave her for the second. Gotcha. And so she's, so she was. That was like, forget it. Her agent should have locked in the
1: three-picture deal right before the shot. Martha yeah,
2: Collins. but also it's just crazy because this was her, you know, direct. I mean, this was not directorial. This was her debut in in film, and she didn't be, do the Rebecca character in Cheers until later, and and the Veronica's Closet character until 1997. So she wasn't at. I mean, this is this is just. She was just starting out in the business with second, so I don't know. I mean, I think in a career, I don't know. It did that takes a lot of guts to say if they did really offer her less than the third one to say no, I'm worth more than this. That is, I mean, that that would make more sense to me. Why she? Because her demanding more is like, well, you're a nobody. You were great in the second one, but demanding more is kind of crazy. But if, if they're offering her less, I can imagine it. But I also just think I wish she would have been in this one because I do think she's phenomenal, and and I do. Robin Curtis is good, but I, I even. When when she, Robin Curtis delivers that line uh, David Admiral, is dead, he's dead. Yeah. David is dead it's, it's just very it's like
1: wooden and lame yeah. as hell and what I liked about having Kirstie Alley in the second one in the, at least in the first couple of movies they kept adding new members to the crew which made it feel less like a nostalgia trip and more like a continuation of the story like, uh, what the hell is the name of the uh, actress uh, who played uh, Aaliyah in a uh, motion picture? But I like how you do have new faces that are major characters in the first couple of movies, and I feel like. Uh, Savick was one of those new faces whereas in like 4, 5, and 6 it's like alright well we're getting the band back together let's just enjoy their company but we're not going to really worry about adding a lot of new blood but I like how the earlier movies did have that emphasis
2: I also kind of felt and this is just maybe her delivery she, I felt like she was kind of a little pissy in this movie with David like she was always like like I don't know, it didn't feel, feel feel the way a Vulcan would act. Like of oh, of course you did this, and you're a human, and just like oh, of course you know. I, I don't know. It just felt very judgmental, and I, I didn't feel the way a Vulcan. I don't. I think the lines were fine. I just feel like maybe it was the delivery of some of the lines. It, um, I just of, it, yeah yeah.
0: Part of me wonders too if the film could have without Kirstie Alley could have just done without the character. Yeah. I don't know if she was crucial to the plot. David's role was. Was very important. Obviously, it's an instigator for Kirk to want revenge and all of that. But um,
1: and it's his fault. This planet's blowing up anyway. He's a kind of a cheater, like his dad. He he cut some corners, right. and all hell's breaking break loose. Right.
0: And I mean, she does help Spock through his trend. His his yeah. that's an important part in the film. Um, that's something that's exploring that side of their their culture, the mythology of of the Vulcan culture but um yeah I mean it doesn't seem like it almost feels like it would have been stronger without Kirstie Alley just to have a different character in in the play it could be a different Vulcan or just somebody else altogether uh it's funny because the the whole Grissom crew as as Leonard Nimoy says in the commentary is almost a farce they're all just sort of comical characters that are like in in, sort of incompetent and, and ridiculous even he said the set is made if you notice the chairs are pink
2: yeah pink they have pink upholstery it's
0: like the whole set and the characters are all designed to basically be like this this group of idiots (laughs) who are investigating this planet compared to kirk's crew of this of you know Hardened veterans that know how to fight. And, yeah. Although the
1: Enterprise bridge looks a little fucked up in this one as well. like That's one of my big knocks against this, is that it seems like they set up a temporary set like in somebody's garage, whereas in every other movie and every other show, the bridge always looks fantastic. Like Good movie, bad movie, good show, bad show, doesn't matter. The bridge always looks great. But it seems like, just from the lighting, obviously they're trying to emphasize the fact that they don't have a full crew, but it feels like if you just move the camera three inches in either direction, you're going to see like grips and electrics and lighting and cables and that sort of thing. It just feels way Way too much like a set, and when they finally do get shot by the Klingons, like when they kind of fall around, even that looks kind of bad. So I was a little disappointed by just the
0: recreation of the bridge. Yeah, I mean, in general, this film was suffering from a very low budget compared to, I mean, after the success of Star Trek 2, it really deserved a lot more. Leonard Nimoy it was again, like 17 million,
1: whereas like the motion 16, picture was like 40 or something yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, it only had 16 million for the budget, which again at that time was was very was very small for a science fiction you know epic and i mean i think they did an incredible job of making i feel this film feel much larger than than what it was shot on i mm-hmm. mean it, it, the biggest problem though as as he said is they were f- forced to shoot at all but two days on sound stages everything's on a sound stage which is very much reminiscent of the of the original series everything's recreated the, the cinematographer uh, charles Corell often cites in the commentary that, you know, he wanted to take the crew to Kauai and Hawaii to shoot on location. He wanted to, you know, to shoot the Genesis planet someplace really exotic. Um, but they just didn't have the money. So they essentially built this soundstage on, uh, I think it was the largest Paramount soundstage, stage 15. Stage 18? Yeah, f- eight, 15 or 18, yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Um, yeah, 18 is the one they do a lot of, uh, I think it is 18.
0: Yeah, and, and they had, it was the stage where they had, um, where they shot Ten Commandments, where they shot the Parting of the Red Seas, mm-hmm. and uh, and it so it had all these, these these, these floors with room below them, so they could sort of have stuff come up, so they could have fire shooting up when the planets exploding and coming apart. So it, it these kind of these false floors that could open up. So they built this elaborate set. Um, it does you know it does look like a set, but I think, it, I still feel like this film makes despite that makes the star trek universe feel much bigger than it has in the past mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you especially you that have big space, ass
1: space station where they're docked yeah, early the on station. that has oh, some yeah. great scale and scope
0: yeah you you see you know you have mccoy in a space bar you know you just sort of get a sense that this is a lived in bigger universe you know or even that scene in the beginning of the film where you see the kind of the space freighter with with valkyrs on it and she's you know transmitting the genesis data like it's the first time you see like an a ship like that that's not a federation or Klingon ship, it's just like a, a little merchant ship that's out there in deep space. It just the the whole film I find creates a much bigger um, universe than than we've had before, despite the, the, the budget constraints. And I always I always enjoyed that about the film. You know, you have a lot of locations, I mean you go from, you know, the Genesis planet to Earth back to the Genesis planet, to Vulcan, it's like you're, they're all over the place. And I think it, it's just, to, to me, and it, this also might be the fact that it was the first Star Trek movie I owned on VHS, and I watched it over and over again. <laughs> but um, it, it always just really felt like a great middle chapter in a trilogy yeah. of three movies. And there's just so many good things about it that for me it's just it's just very rewatchable there's just a lot of So how great can people just just call two, 2
1: 3 and 4 a trilogy when they don't how can people not call the first four movies a quartet cuz i feel like with the arrival of spock in the motion picture where he's really trying to go through this where he's really struggling with his embrace of logic, et cetera, and he's going through this major transformation emotionally throughout that movie before he kind of laughs and realizes that pure logic really offers no wisdom or answers that he thought it might. But I feel like the first four movies do work as a quartet, but people always seem to say, oh, no, it's a trilogy, two, three, and four.
2: I think it, it makes it more of a trilogy because you see, because of of Spock's death, really, not really like him developing as a character because he dies. Then there's a resurrection of him. Then it's him trying to find him his way back because yeah. he, yeah, because he he loses his Katra, which is sort of like his mortal spoil, soul, soul, his living spirit, and he gets it. And then he, the end of the spot at the end of Search for Spock, you see him with Jim, and he re- realizes he remembers. He called them Jim. He recognizes his friends. Doesn't know. And what's great about the um, fourth one is he really be- remembers who he is and becomes that person again and it's really, so I think it's really that arc of uh, his death, his resurrection to becoming who we know and love him to be and also I just think I, this film is so amazing on like the whole uh, morality play of really what, spot, of, uh, what Star Trek is. Like the fact that Kirk is willing to give up his career and his crew is um, for to save their friend. Like that's more important to them. Like it, when he says yeah, at he the gives end, up his
1: son and his career yeah, for his right. buddies. So yeah, and his ship. Yeah, and his yeah, ship. And, 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 Mar- and Mark Leonard Sarek obviously points that out. And so you, you yeah. it, there's a lot of a uh, tremendous sacrifice on Kirk's part. But I do struggle watching a Star Trek movie without Spock. Like Spock, for me, is one of the all-time great sci-fi characters. And obviously Next Generation has their own great characters. And clearly we hear his voice and we see him at the end. But there's something about watching Search for Spock where we see all these scrubs pretending to be the young baby Spock growing up. I'm like, you don't look like him at all. Like, go, go away. Like, like, stop showing that person. He looks ridiculous. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people struggle with Search for Spock is that an original series movie without Spock is diminished overall emotionally because he's, so, I mean, Kirk's obviously a total badass, but Kirk without Spock, it's like John Lennon without Paul McCartney. It's just, it's it's not the well, same thing.
0: I mean, I think that, I think again, looking at it as a trilogy, if you look at them together as one, one long story, it, it works because you just have this, you know, 90, well, let's say 75 minute chunk in the middle where he's not there, but he's still there before and after. And I think, I agree with Becky that it's about Spock's journey, but it's also sort of the Genesis trilogy. It's the three films yeah. that fill the Genesis planet and the repercussions of that. So even the fourth film is picking up where it left off. And they're also all pretty much taking place um, time wise, one right after the other with yeah. no time break whatsoever. Whereas the, the first movie, between the first and the, the second movie, there's a considerable amount of time because kirk has now been promoted to admiral he's missing his, you know he's he's training space cadets you know so there's something there's a whole there's a whole world of of stories that may have happened between the first and second films but i think that's the the and and star trek five as well seems like it took it's taking place Considerably later although I don't know if that's really true. I It's because it they all gets that, so but,
1: fat and gray. Like yeah. this is the first movie where you start to notice that William shatner' starting to pack on some weight. And like I know his weight fluctuated throughout the uh, throughout the movie, and apparently yeah. they said uh, they had to make twelve different size shirts for him. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Oh, no. <laughs> his weight yeah. was going well, up. Well, oh he's
2: human. I think that's yeah. you know that's a human thing, and it's he's playing his age, and I I think that that I like it's nice that we're growing old with these characters, and it is harder to maintain your weight as you get but older. but By generations, so.
1: he's a big know. old swollen. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas in the motion picture, he's still lean and mean. Like yes, he's still like a sex machine yeah. in the motion picture. He's still, a, yeah. he's
2: just so wonderful though. It's so funny. Cause I grew up, um, you know, loving Star Trek, the original series just so much. And Spock was my guy. Like I, everything of a Spock, I, if I had to choose between getting any sort of character, I'd always choose Spock and sort of, and maybe it's just in getting older or what it is in the last, I would say five, 10 years. I have really gravitated more towards Captain Kirk being my favorite character, I just love him so much. He's just so wonderful, and um, he's just he's he's he always does the right thing. He does that you know one two punch that he does. He's just such a badass, and he's just like uh, he really cares about his friends and and the and like the fact that he's. Gonna he he doesn't want to give up like he said about his soul like you know he would rather do this and give up his soul like that, that just shows somehow just really like who he is that these friendships and 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 this crew is what means a lot to him he and he's just so funny and I love his relationship with Spock and. Um, I don't know, it's become, it's interesting how Spock, how, um, Kirk has now become like my favorite character. And I think this, I really love this film because I really think it, it, it really, he is the central character and you really see his story, but Spock's always there too, because it's about Spock and it's about what Spock means to everybody and why they're risking everything. So I still think he's there. It's funny because, uh, Leonard Nimoy talks in the commentary about directing and he said it was super hard for him to, he, he said it was easier for him to direct this movie because he wasn't in most of it but the part that McCoy was in where he's talking over him was super hard because he had his eyes closed and the McCoy was upset because McCoy felt like he was directing him with the way he was moving as his, his eyes closed. Cause he's, and it was just really funny. I think that's, that's funny that, that, uh, that to DeForest Kelly thought that Spock was directing him like through the way he was fluttering his eyes and stuff. Well, along those lines, what do you think about the
1: tradition, starting with this movie, of principal cast members slipping into the director's chair? Because obviously something that Jonathan Frakes has pulled off very successfully. Yeah. William Shatner pulled it off less successfully with the, the, yeah. the Final Frontier. But it seems like it's a tradition to have some of the cast members participate with writing, producing, directing, etc., on the whole, has that approach to Star Trek been a, a positive one, in your opinion, over since in the decades since this flick? Uh,
2: I think so. I, I I think this film is. I think that it, it carries a lot of it, the history and what you know how to work with these actors. I think the actors in the beginning. I think of this film uh, did say that it's weird at first to have them be directed, and I think the same thing by. Um, by Shatner in the next one but then they realize this is their friend and, and they know what they're talking about and they've done a lot of uh, uh, research and know what they're doing and I think you learn a lot as an actor I mean I'm, I'm not an actor but I think as an actor you learn a lot being on set what you would and wouldn't do I think with anything but I think this film is great and you know the the next film Voyage Home is my sec- is uh, my second favorite in the series and uh, I think uh, Leonard Nimoy directed that and he all came on to be, go on to be a great Director with three, three minutes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, to yeah. hit, I don't. I haven't revisited that movie in was, over thirty years. I haven't
2: revisited years. it either. But I, I adored it when I, a long time ago. But. uh it definitely you know, could make Good popular night, films. William yes, it really Shatner not as much, but go. I think some of the best episodes of Star Trek uh, have been directed by Jonathan Frakes. So I just I, I I'm all all in. I always feel like I like it when there's somebody at the helm who's has history because you know that they care about this franchise and and these characters and understand what they mean. And um, I mean, when Harp Bennett for this movie uh like writing it he he for the sac- the second film he didn't know anything about star trek like they brought him in because like they d- they uh they had no budget and he was such an amazing team producer Myers. But-
1: he was like a fresh a fresh voice for the franchise
2: yeah. But Carl Bennett like plow through all 79 of the Star Trek original series episodes and um, and then became obsessed with Khan and then he came up with the idea for the second film. And I think he really took care of this one. So uh, I think I think that, you know, it's ever too late to discover Star Trek and get all in. uh, And but I think it's it's nice when you have somebody who's been there along the way and understands what motivates them. And uh, I I always feel like they take care of the film. So I, I I I'm all for it. What about you, Adam?
0: Yeah, I think they've all done, uh, for the most part, and there's been others, too. Those are the most prominent. But there's been a, a Roxanne uh, Biggs-Dawson, who is Valana, uh, and Voyager, has been directing episodes of TV uh, as well. There's been uh, Robert Duncan McNeil, who was in Voyager, directed a bunch of episodes. So there's definitely – this has become a, a reoccurring um, you know, uh, thing to have – the actors take a stab at directing from time to time. I think there's others too. There's Bruce other Campbell did it with like CS9. Zena
1: and stuff like that. Like he even yeah. like, he started doing right. some directing.
0: Yeah, I think it just it becomes. I mean, first of all, TV, it in particular, is once there's a style established, uh, and 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 you have a showrunner in place, with producers in place and writers in place, it's not. You're not changing. You know, you're not reinventing the wheel. You're kind of just stepping in. And, and, you know, making sure you're, you're shooting a, a script and a schedule. You're trying to keep things on 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 target, on time, and you're shooting the script. You're making sure the actors get their best performances. But otherwise, everything's kind of consistent. Yeah, you know? like Kevin There's,
1: Smith uh, does a lot of TV for a lot of those uh, DC superhero shows, and they don't look or feel like Kevin Smith movies. They just feel like yet another well, episode. He's just stepping in even, to be part of the team for that particular episode. Exactly.
0: And an even better example is uh, Quentin Tarantino directed a two-parter of Alias back in like 2002 or something and it's a great it's a great episode but it doesn't have any Quentin Tarantino you would never know he directed this two-part episode of Alias with Jennifer Garner if you didn't read that he directed it. So it, the show had already established so much of what makes it, a, a, the, you know, uh, the series what it was that he couldn't deviate too far from that. So I think television in general has that uh, it, it's easier to direct and or to at least learn about directing. Like, that's what Nimoy did. He learned about directing on TV so that he could then bring those lessons to uh, a feature film. Mm-hmm. Now, a feature film, you have a lot more leeway to kind of put your own stamp on it. Although this film in particular, Star Trek III, because of the budgetary constraints as well as the fact that they had, he couldn't, as he said in the commentary, he couldn't make new costumes, he couldn't build... Uh, a new bridge. He had to pretty much work with what was presented to him from the ending of Star Trek II since very little time had passed. They were able to, working with Industrial Light and Magic, um, cook up some really cool new visual effects for the, the uh, you know, the, the Excelsior was a new starship that they had to design. Uh, obviously the space dock, this is the first time that we see um, the huge space dock uh, model. Both the interior and the exterior, was ju- which is just, Uh, one of my favorite designs from star trek i mean i don't know how you would ever build something this big i mean obviously there's the death star debate you know is that even possible but this in star trek this is supposed to be a little more grounded in reality and i just think it's such a massive structure you start small and keep adding on pieces like a big giant (laughs) lego (laughs) i guess i guess but um i back to the visual effects i really think that that this film has some of my favorite to me it it has it's it's progressed so much from movie to movie, but this is where we really start to see, I think, some of the best model effects of the of the Enterprise and the Bird of mm, Prey, yeah, Celsius. Like they really had gotten the the and perfected the ability to shoot these models um, in a way that looked really photorealistic, and, and um, especially like the the, the the Enterprise blowing up and um i love you know, that line not-
1: when it's like what have i done is like what you've always done <laughs> but turn what is it turn death into a fighting, chance to, a
0: fighting chance to live yeah, yeah. great great line by yes, mccoy so great yeah there's just i know some people think that because of the soundstage look of genesis that the effects aren't up to par but uh i think the space scenes are fantastic i think they really did some and it's the first time you ever see a bird of prey people forget this this is the movie that invented that look of a romulan bird of prey we had the the other ships that were in the motion picture, but this was a total new design. And I just love how it carries into Star Trek four and they're now piloting mm. this prey, you know, going back to earth. And it just, to me, this, these three films just work so nicely together. I, uh, to me, if, if anyone is interested in Star Trek, watching two, three, and four together is a great entry point just to kind of get a feel for these characters and the epic scale of of where you know the the stories can go. Obviously, the shows are where it all began, so that's another great entry point. But for people who might not want to go back and watch a show from the '60s, I think these films, these three these three movies, are a great way. Just they're just great action adventure movies. If, even if you don't like science fiction, there's just so much to to get you uh, to get you hooked and and excited about. And I love that they. The tone of the movies changes so much from just so serious in Star Trek Two and Three to such a, a really great fun, you know, comedy almost in Star Trek Four, it's, and, and it just ties everything up so so perfectly at the end. So, well, Becky, what
1: do you think I mean, about yeah. James Horner's kind of variations on his themes that he established in Wrath of Khan? Do you think his score improves, goes down, stays the same? Like, I mean, it seems like it. For me, it's hard. It's kind of, for me it's kind of more the same but I feel like it's a little perhaps a little more distinctive and original in Wrath of Khan, because that's when he was coming out of the gate with his signature themes
2: I loved it I yeah I mean I think it's, I guess it is more, more of the same but I, I still think it's beautiful and the the music when the enterprise is being destroyed and when Kirk finds out that David is dead I thought it was really poignant um I, I thought he did a really uh really nice job and I, I know Nimoy does too like Nemoy actually uh, calls out his score in the commentary for star Trek three as like soaring at times and devastatingly painful at times. And he, he's really rapturous about it. So I know that's nice that the director really appreciated it, but, um, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I think it's great. I, I used to own this soundtrack. I just don't think I have it anymore though. If for you some had reason. to
1: lose one forever and keep one forever, do you keep James Horner or do you keep Jerry Goldsmith?
2: Oh, Jerry Goldsmith is my favorite. <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith.
1: I wish this is this is why we need to have this on YouTube because the feel the expression of anguish you just made <laughs> it was, it was priceless. Yes.
2: Oh yes. my god. Well, I'm doing my first YouTube that, that, for uh, for uh, Comic Con, right? Oh no! Is well, it, I mean, if, if you want to do
1: YouTube, absolutely. I, I oh, assume, I thought
2: that was a live stream. But I, if it's not if, a live stream, I'm down to record just one. Episode. If you want
1: to do well, that's it's totally up to you. If you want to do YouTube, I will gladly do YouTube. If you want to do just oh, no, pure audio, I, I
2: thought you were forcing me to. No, 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 no! I, no, 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 I, no.
1: I, I, <laughs> I always want my guests to be relaxed. I, I totally respect that some people don't want to be on screen. So I'm um, not one of those yeah. people.
2: I'm definitely self-conscious about the way I look. I don't think I'm a dev, uh, you know like a hideous monster or anything, but I think I'll be fine. Just I, cosplay. Shove I, uh, just Shove dress
1: to Savic, and uh, that'll give you all the confidence in the world.
2: I know, right now I'm wearing, I don't know, you guys can see, I'm wearing my Live Long and Prosper polo ah, t-shirt. Very hip. Salute. But yeah, you you would miss out on all my fun stuff if you, maybe <laughs> I didn't, yeah, maybe I, 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 I uh, I might be down for I thought we were doing one. It's
1: it's entirely up to you. Whatever makes you most relaxed. But speaking of the Vulcans, what do you think of the return of Mark Leonard as Sarek in this?
2: Oh, it's so wonderful. I think it's great. I I love him so much. And he's... uh, He's he's uh, like he only was uh, Serik I think in the original series in one episode, but he obviously was in uh, as other characters <laughs> in the original series. But then he go, goes on to play Serik in subsequent movies, and I just think he's wonderful. I, I love the character of Seric and I love Mark Leonard. So um, and I like how Mark Leonard seems a little pissed in the beginning when he does. Yeah. Me- like, how could you let this happen? You know, Spock would have left his Katra, and he just... and then I, I thought that, that that added a nice weight behind it because he's obviously very heartbroken about his son and the fact that his son, uh, didn't uh didn't uh, do this ritual. Like how important it was for Vulcans to give up there, uh, make sure that the living soul did move on. So I, 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 I thought he added a lot of weight, and I was very happy about him being in this film.
0: Yeah, Mr. me too. I it was great to. Uh... Great to see him again again this is just another one of the elements that to me it broadens the canvas for this movie and the the sort of film uh versions of star trek you get to sort of see yet another character from the original series uh brought into the fold and uh yeah, there's just so many things about this movie I I, I really love. I love the escape from space dock sequence. I think it's just oh fantastic.
1: yeah, got M- I mean, it's, Miguel it's, Ferrer in there. Uh, yeah, yeah. great little cameo. It pre RoboCop. Yeah, pre pre Cokehead uh, getting shot in the legs by yeah, yeah, Clarence Boddicker. That's
0: right. That's right.
2: <laughs> was um, he like uh, so, he's uh, filing his nails?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, James Sicking Se- 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 is filing his nails like in his quarters with this like fancy <laughs> Federation nail files. <laughs> Um, but he's of course nope. the dad from Doogie Howser, M.D., and he was uh, also in um, was it Hill 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 Street Blues or Street one of those? Blues. Yeah, and um, and you know who else is in this movie? You may not know. But he plays one of the Klingons. Is oh, John it's
2: John Larroquette?
0: Yeah, he plays Maltz, who's the only surviving Klingon.
2: The thoughtful <laughs> Klingon.
0: Yeah, the thoughtful Klingon. <laughs> uh, who Kirk says, "Maltz, Jolly chew." <laughs> is, you know, well,
2: she she does, a, he does a really good job her. of uh, yeah. uh, of mimicking that because well, he doesn't, doesn't speak Klingon. He doesn't speak enough yeah.
1: Klingon where you can offer some <laughs> final thoughts on Search for Spock in Klingon on this podcast. No, I,
0: I just know a few of those lines from the movie. I've seen it too many times. That, it, uh, uh, yeah, it's yeah. I know Kirk basically hears Krug say that line in Klingon and mm-hmm. uses you know, uses it as a as a way to get out of uh, of being, you know, burnt <laughs> burnt alive on, on Genesis. That's but bad. but I always, my one question though is, Moltz was the only Klingon up on the Bird of Prey and he beams up like six people. Did he think he could overpower all six of them? I mean, no. right? Like, it's sort of a one- well, he, he, thinks, that, he thinks that they,
2: that maybe he thinks that they are, oh, well, the, he probably I mean, he never you never see like what- arrested or uh, like, you yeah. know, that he has them um, that I don't think he would. Well, he didn't say how many to beam up, right?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. That is
2: interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Plot but I like how he's like, you said you are going to
0: There's like a passing remark, like we over... He he was overpowered by the you know by the crew or whatever. But yeah, okay. of course he was. DeForest
1: and Kelly was... couldn't over overpower an egg. So <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he is frail. he's frail. I love him. He's a total total stud, but yeah, he's I mean, he's maybe skeletal at some, this point. Uh, maybe
0: Sulu did some some of his moves. But you look at DeForest
1: um, Kelly, I mean he started acting in movies like uh like Gunfight at OK Corral back like in the fifties. I mean yeah. he is old as dog shit by the time they get to these movies, so All right. All right. yeah, he he's another a thing seasoned I, veteran. I,
0: another yeah, another thing that I just want to bring up is I like that we saw the adolescent Vulcan when he's going through the Pong Far that you see him like grab one of the Klingons and just throw him over the fire and just oh, shows yeah. cause you're supposed to, you, a lot of people don't realize this, but Vulcans are actually stronger than Klingons. Klingons are way stronger than humans, but Vulcans are very strong. They just don't use their, their strength because Except they're so Except for the reserved.
1: Kirk versus Spock
0: episode yeah, when they throw that's down
1: that's right. but, uh, but really oh, Spock
0: could nice. have spock should have overpowered kirk very easily because they have i i can't remember what it is but it's like two or three times the strength of a human you know when they're when they have to use it and so uh i like that i like the idea that you know spock if he needed to could kick some Klingon
2: ass. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know? <laughs> hey, di- did I, I don't know if I heard this right, but didn't Robin Curtis say something in the commentary about, like, it was implied that she was impregnated by Spock doing the pomphar because, like, she stayed on the planet with him, um, with the um, Vulcan afterward well, yeah, and it was does. implied That she was pregnant or something.
1: She should have just told him to rub one out. She doesn't need to actually, like, you know, bear his seed if he's feeling some well, pent up urges. And even
0: and Nimoy did refer to that as foreplay. That whole sequence where they're touching hands and everything. Yeah. Foreplay in the in the commentary. So I don't know what happened after that. <laughs>
2: Underage. Sure. I don't know. Do you have a kid? Yeah, yeah. No, I felt like I thought I had heard that she said something and I think I was in a hurry and I'm like, I never went back to see and I'm like, what? Wait, what? Yeah. Because they are, you know, they are doing mating rituals. So, <laughs> I don't know. Is like, it? It's I, never to, I don't know. Because he little needs little. it because it's every seven years. So, in right. order for him not One to. One of those
1: mysteries, you know, best left unsolved. Yeah, he
2: gets, <laughs> you know, they become violent die if they don't mate every seven yeah. years. So, she's got to help him out. That's why they needed a Vulcan. <laughs> That's
0: right. That's right. You're right. A they Vulcan did, woman. They could have been, but they could have just had a different Vulcan woman. I mean, that would have almost been the simpler I Have a make love solution. to a watermelon. <laughs> oh,
2: oh, my God. What? Well, I think it's a telepathic ritual, right? I don't know. Uh,
0: oh, I found it. It, um, it says, I don't know what this is, trekmovie.com. Robin Curtis talks about Savic Pregnancy being cut from Star Trek Four. Ah, gotcha.
2: So I it's guess... It's weird, there... weird. Yeah. We just had my watermelon comment. It doesn't yeah. seem
1: like a total uh, non sequitur. We had a bus driver back in the day when I was a little kid who used to tell us really, really gross stories, and he was talking about how he used to masturbate when he was too young, and that you know, he was too young to come and only duck water come out, and we were like, what's duck water? But then he was talking about how he used to make love to watermelons. At any rate, I can't even remember his name. According to him, felt fantastic, so if anyone out there is feeling lonely...
2: Oh, Go find a watermelon God.
1: patch and you are off to the races. But anyway
2: One fi- of these days I'll do an episode with you where there's not some crazy, some <laughs>
1: disgusting comment made by me. <laughs>
2: I love it. I'm
1: like, ah! Well then, pull this episode back Hello. to the side of the angels. Give us your your, your final thoughts, Becky, on the search for Spock. Uh, any anything we haven't that we haven't uh, touched upon that you want to? Yeah, just a
2: few quick things that I thought were interesting. Um, one was, uh, which I thought was fun in just researching the movie. Um, I read that after previous greetings of Wrath of Khan, that like there was a ma- there was strong negative reaction to Spock dying, so they put in a new ending sequence which showed Fox Box's coffin landing on Genesis, and um, you know, sort of hinting that he could be resurrected and I guess that p- pissed off obviously Nicholas Meyer that they altered his uh, ending and that's why he didn't come back for the, the next movie, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, and then another thing is they, in the marketing, of the movie, because I'm in marketing, I thought this was fascinating that, um, the, they wanted to hide that the enterprise was destroyed in this movie. Um, but, um, uh, they uh the marketing uh, people won out and put it in the trailer of ah! the Enterprising Explosion. Yeah, and they and Nimoy and the crew said that they were heartbroken that that was in the trailer. Um, that well, because they wanted it to be a surprise. Well, maybe the
1: marketers were right because it grossed eighty seven million worldwide and on a sixteen million dollar budget. That's not bad I think.
2: Again, Indiana but, Jones, but Gremlins, uh, and Ghostbusters all released within yeah. a few weeks of this movie. Yeah, this was one of like the top five movies
1: of the year, wasn't it? Or was Rosebud?
2: Yeah. Sorry, what did you say, Adam? Oh, I was saying what you were
0: to add to what you're saying is it, it's even stranger because they went to such lengths with chemically treated scripts and not giving out uh, and having special security teams to to make sure, giving only certain pages of script to set designers that they needed and actors to make sure that, that the structure of the Enterprise was not leaked, and then the trailer team just cut it to, <laughs> to the movie, like it, you know, who cares? Yeah.
2: It's just the trailer. You know, it probably just went to the roof, the the because they test all those trailers. Yeah. But another thing is interesting is that the another spoiler warning because I work in third party partnerships. There there was a Taco Bell promotion with this movie that came out with four collectible glasses, and oh. one of the glasses actually showed. And actually, I bought them last night on eBay because I oh. just was like, I need to own these, <laughs> so they will now be in my office in a few weeks. I'm like, I why don't I own these glasses? I'm buying them, and they're not. They were like thirty bucks on eBay. But what did they give away? Connection. They gave away four collectible glasses. One of the glasses,
1: what spoiler did the glass give away?
2: Yeah, one of the Enterprise being exploded oh. on the ship, and it said, and ty- it typed on the glass, Enterprise destroyed was one of the promotional cool. glasses given out. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, on that note, real quick, I want to press pause, but I do want to start switching gears into my little game that I have in store for you. So, I want y'all to uh, get ready for a little game I have in store for y'all today, and I'm going to call it Bull or Bear or just Buy, Sell, or Hold. Where What I want y'all to do is think of certain franchises or characters or series as if they are a stock. Obviously, you can't buy, sell, or trade like certain franchises, but if you were to think of them as something that could be commoditized like that, I want you to think about the current lay of the land, how healthy they are. And whether or not moving into the next couple of years in the immediate future, would you buy, sell, or hold? Or recommend to buy, sell, or hold. Now, Becky, I, rec- I recognize that you have a lot of friends who work in these franchises. So if you need to abstain on certain franchises, by all means, I, t- I totally understand. Adam, you can be a little more uh, vicious and hard-nosed. But I want to get <laughs> yeah. y'all's opinions on a variety of franchises when, moving into the question? future. Fire away.
2: Uh, just an education. Hold means you already have it.
1: Hold means you already have mean? it, but you but you're not gonna sell. You're not gonna buy. Just you're kind of wait and see. Like 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 I've i got a lot of Apple stock kinda right neutral. now. Neutral. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's neutral. Like I've got Apple stock right now. I'm neither buying more nor am I selling in it. I'm just kind of wait and see what happens with Apple. And okay, there's, there's nothing nothing so no condemnation. You're not that hold. you already
2: own anything, right?
1: Well, once again, this is a total make believe game, so we can make okay. up whatever rules we want. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> but if you say hold, that implies that. You're good. You're waiting to see. You think things are going fine, but that you're not going to do make any extreme uh, emotional okay. uh, decisions regarding okay. uh, the franchise. So, okay. Adam, I'm going to start with you and we're going to slowly ease into this conversation. Okay. And we'll start with the softball MCU, Buller Bear, buy, sell, or hold.
0: So, based on where everything, how everything has been building and the success of all the films, I think that. It would be smart to continue buying. That being said, personally, I think that we might have hit a plateau where people are people will always go see superhero movies, but I think we're starting to hit a point where, um, like, where do we go from here? Right? How much how much better can these movies get after Endgame? And as you know, you know Becky had mentioned that Far From Home is one of her favorite superhero movies uh spider-man movies so like where do we go from here right what's next so as they have yet to make any announcements um i wouldn't bet against them yet right i think they're kevin feige is still in you know at the helm so i still think that there's a lot of uh potential for them to keep going up but i am starting to get um not, not nervous but I it's one of those things where when, with using the stock analogy it's the rule of large numbers how much bigger can they get right and a lot of times people start selling a stock when it starts to get too too big when it starts to get too high when it they think well, it, can't, some games. it can't keep going up right yeah. can this is this this isn't sustainable so that's kind of where I'm starting to to, to to feel about the MCU that it may not be sustainable forever uh, nothing is right everything has to hit uh has to plateau at some point and uh i think other franchises we've seen this happen x-men is a good example it definitely had its peak and then it kind of you know started to go back back down again beat the peak potentially being days of future past you know and then it was sort of downhill from there so yeah i think uh, i would i would say not to bet i wouldn't bet against them yet but That's because we haven't heard anything yet, right? We haven't been given anything. Yeah,
1: later this summer, there's going to be a lot of news, and it might break the internet one way or the the other.
0: Without having any new information other than the great early reception Like, we know about the Eternals.
1: We know about Shang-Chi. We know about Black Panther 2. We know about Doctor Strange 2. But we don't know when, where, how... And we don't know about any like the big movies that, or Becky probably has some inside information. But we don't know anything about like the teams apart from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, which obviously incorporates Thor. So we know some of the movies over the next couple of years, but we don't have a clear picture yet. But Becky, can you even uh, opine on this topic given Sony's relationship with Marvel and Spidey, et cetera, and so forth?
2: Uh, uh, <laughs> Adam had a great argument, and so I'll just say hold.
1: Beautiful. Okay. All right. I think. I think. Hold. I'm hold for me is where I stand as well. I'm not ready to sell, but I, if I if Marvel like I bought Marvel stock back when I was in business school before it got acquired by Disney, and I would not buy more Marvel right now if you could still buy individual Marvel. Although I might buy some more fucking Disney. They. Some people are thinking they might have a nine billion dollar year. Like, God, yeah. I read that article eight, you sent. Yeah, eight is like the conservative estimate. But yeah, Disney is doing just fine. So I would not bet against Disney. <laughs> Anytime soon. No. All, right. All right, so, uh, Becky, we'll start with you on this one. You're kay. one of your, your rivals over at Warner Brothers. The DCEU, meaning Oof. the cinematic universe of Batman, Superman, Wonder yeah. Woman, none of the TV shows, Buller Bear on the DCEU, Post Shazam, Wonder Woman on the horizon, the Harley Quinn movie Birds of Prey on the horizon, An Aquaman 2 at some point. Well, so we Cell. Have, and, and we know the Matt Reeves' Batman's coming. Cell? Yeah. And pourquoi? <sighs>
2: Uh, the Joker movie looks interesting. I, I haven't been interested in really any of these. I mean, it, I like Shazam, uh, sort of like, I thought that I had a lot of problems, uh, with the film. Um, and I refused to see Aquaman. I thought it looked horrible when I saw it at Comic-Con <laughs> and I just like, I didn't understand the wig situation and I just thought it looked awful, but all my friends thought it looked great. And then I don't, reviews that were mixed, I guess, but I just couldn't do it. I usually like to see big movies to be part of the conversation, but I just, there isn't really any movies that they have on the horizon in the DC, although I'm interested in this Joker movie um, and I'm interested in, um, you know, Rob Pattinson as Batman, but I I just think they still have not found their way. So I would say sell.
1: Uh, I'm in the same boat. Like I actually saw Aquaman twice and enjoyed it, but this is a, a giant ship without a captain or a rudder or whatever analogy you want to use. And I feel like there's no plan, there's no architect, there's no grand vision. I think you'll see one-offs like Matt Reeves' Batman, which might be cool, or you might – Todd Phillips' Joker, R-rated Joker might be cool. But I think what we'll see is the occasional spike, like Aquaman where it does a billion dollars. But I think we're going to see a lot more movies like Shazam, which I thought completely sucked balls. But yeah. Adam, what about you, uh, DCEU, Bull
0: or Bear? Well, I I think I'm I'm one of the few I, – I think I'm a, a – uh, bear, but for different reasons. I, I was one of the few people that actually enjoyed Zack Snyder's visual style and approach. I, did, I think there were some missteps with the stories and the character interpretations, but I really think that he was trying to create a very interesting, interconnected, dark universe that some like me, who's been a fan for a long time and as an adult, would really have appreciated. I mean, if you read some of the early treatments of where he wanted to take um, his Justice League films... It, they, like they were, it was going to be super epic and intense, and super dark and and scary and violent, and and I want, I would like to see that DC yeah. So I feel Perhaps like we I'd lost right. it. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we lost it when BVS didn't perform the way they wanted. Everything started to shift, and they they just he got neutered. And I'm not saying that Zack Snyder doesn't have doesn't bear some responsibility for this, but I at least feel like there was an attempt. To have him be the the visionary um, carrying the the franchise in a specific direction. What I think they did wrong was instead of just giving the instead of just sticking to it, they neutered his vision to a point where the fans that liked it didn't. I hated Justice League the way it was was finished, and and so and the people that didn't most people I feel like didn't like it. Uh, Even if that didn't like Zack Snyder, didn't really care for for that much for it either. So it's like you didn't, you weren't appealing to anybody then, you know, there was nobody. It was the lowest performing
1: movie in the DCEU. It should have been the biggest.
0: Right. So I feel like right now I don't understand what they're doing. And I don't understand, does Joker fit into that existing DC, you know, extended universe or not? I
1: doubt anybody at Warner Brothers even knows the answer to that question. And that's part of the problem.
0: And that's part of the problem, and so that's part of my problem. And and also, same thing with the Batman. Like, how does Rob Pattinson? I mean, this could be a very great standalone trilogy of Batman movies. I don't know, but does it? Is it a younger version of of Ben Affleck? You know, or is that what we're seeing? Is it? Does it still fit in with the continuity that was established? Or is the, are these like multiple reboots? running uh, th- parallel point, wonder what they,
1: they, they have so many dc shows and movies using these characters it's like all these yeah. little separate continuities whether you're talking about the dc universe app which has its own batman and then you've got like the show gotham or at least you did until this most recent season you got you know, a different batman there then you got like the bat the ben affleck batman yeah. they just have too many separate continuities the beauty over at disney's they said you know what we're gonna have a grand vision, and the Disney Plus app is going to tell more stories that are part of that vision, and it just it feels like a universe. It feels it has an internal right. logic that's very accessible exactly. and desirable. And, and even yeah, even the, even the shows,
0: actually. even the shows that are even little, even shows like um, is it um, Cloak and Dagger, you know, on uh, Freeform, are technically part of the MCU, and it's not they're not blatantly part of it, but there are little. Little Easter eggs that connect back to the movies, and I think that's that's the way you do it. You know, they can be whatever they are. They can be standalone shows, but but find a way to make them interconnected. And right now, as you said, there's just too many different, um, you know, simultaneous storylines taking place that don't feel like they're they're connected in any one specific way and it's and it's confusing because it almost looks like they're rebooting with joker and with batman but wonder woman still technically is the same it's a actress, continuation so it's and a continuation. the suicide
1: squad by james gunn yeah. is gonna be a continuation. right so it's like they're gonna continue with the continuity but like soft reboot other parts once again total right bananas yeah. confusion like chris <laughs> fine's
2: gonna be like a different character in the movie isn't he's in it but he's like gonna right. be like a different we character know, or yet, something how, yeah yeah we haven't yeah. figured out how it's not that he's hot
1: work. and that people right. like him so they got to find a way to, to yeah. get get him in there he's perfect well, well, I think yeah, part exactly. of they that
0: movie work, part of what I think what people liked was their chemistry. Oh, uh, yeah, dynamic. chemistry was so fantastic. So they, they realized, well, if he's not in it, are we losing half our audience right there? So it's uh, – yeah, so I, I'm definitely – because they they let go of the, the initial – because they didn't stick with the initial vision and try to see it through, uh, and because it's so fragmented – in yeah. terms of the slate blinked, that's coming out. I'm they chickened out,
1: and it's been chaos yeah. ever since. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, Becky, here's an, a chance to
1: take a shot at another one of your competitors over Warner Brothers. The legendary MonsterVerse, a.k.a. the Godzilla reboot, Kong Skull Island, oh. now Godzilla King of the Monsters, and next year's King, uh, Kong versus Godzilla, buy, sell, or hold the MonsterVerse.
2: I love the MonsterVerse, but not any of these movies. Uh, I would say sell, hard sell. (laughs) (laughs) Hard
0: sell, I like it.
2: No, it just it's it's so I, I just can't. They I want them to be good and they're not and I just it makes me sad because I love the universal monsters. And um God, what was the movie that was uh, done by Well Adam Kurtzman the Universal
1: Monsters? The Universal Monsterverse is different. This is the legendary Monsterverse. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Alex Kurtzman Monsterverse, the dark universe is a different thing entirely, which was anti still born
0: still. still yeah. <laughs> Adam, you,
1: where do where do you stand on Legendary's Monsterverse?
0: I uh, I have yet to see the latest uh King of the Monsters movie. I didn't have any like anything like pulling me to see that. Um I did like Skull Island. I thought they did a very good That's job my of, favorite of the three that
2: movie too. Yeah. So actually
0: that and, and I liked how there was some little uh you know hints at what's to come at the end if you wait you, you know you watch the little after credit sequence. I think they they established a really cool um possibility with that movie of a shared universe now I, you probably james are the only one who saw king of the monsters right i,
1: I did indeed I
0: was, yeah so i can't judge that <laughs> movie yet. so without having seen it I, I know that it's not performing well and it didn't do great with critics but um i have to say that a king Kong versus godzilla movie could surprise us you know and could end up being a, a, a big hit those are two iconic characters so if handled correctly and
1: it's that dude who directed the the guest as well as the reboot of uh blair witch project what the hell's that guy's name again Um, uh but he's a you know young talented director who could potentially become something huge if congress's uh
0: godzilla ends up popping and doing well exactly so i wouldn't bet i would I, i would say i'm a hold on this franchise i think there's still Potential one movie, this current one missing its mark to me doesn't mean that the whole franchise is now. You know, two. It's kind of like one. It could be a fluke. Two. It's it's going down. (laughs) So if if next year's King versus Godzilla doesn't work, then I think it's done. Well, the big question
1: (laughs) is whether or not they blink and start second-guessing that movie right now and start fucking around with so, like, but, reshoots and post-production, right. they could have another Justice League
0: on their hands where they're like, oh, fuck, we're, we're on the wrong That's path. True. And they, they could easily and, freak out. And it's and, and what happened, not that I have any interest in seeing it, but with the, uh, the Sonic Hedgehog movie, they actually completely pulled the movie and are <laughs> redoing all the animation. <laughs> Oh, because no. of fan backlash, the, 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 the
1: creature looked ridiculous.
0: It's like you've got twenty-five
1: yeah. years of video games where the characters look the exact same every single time, yeah. and then suddenly you give us this weird little mutant monstrosity with yeah. these weird teeth. It's like, guess what? People want Sonic to look like Sonic. Like, yeah.
2: uh, <laughs> I can't that believe I- that's actually happening. That's, I mean, that's, that, I mean, it's great though that they're able to fix it.
1: Sort well, of. I mean, I mean we'll see. We'll, we'll see what the right, final product it, resembles.
2: They fix it, yeah. It it at least it, we're it. like, oh, that's it. They
0: were at least able to pivot. <laughs> it's totally
2: right, scary right. now, looking. But
0: I think it's the first time that a film has, I mean, certainly films have been altered because of test screenings, that we, as we talked about, you know, with Star Trek II and and, and others. But um, I think it's the first t- time that a trailer has triggered a studio to pull a movie from its release date and completely remake, essentially remake all the visual effects because of fan backlash, it's a pretty incredible cost- thing. Yeah, expensive, and I don't think this movie has a huge audience to begin with. So <laughs> I don't know if it's even worth do- putting the money into this. I feel like sell, I mean, sell, the- sell don't, don't, all the way on Sonic put the Hedgehog. Yeah, <laughs> <at that? No. laughs> um, yeah, sell, sell, sell. Certainly. All right. That's, that's WB, right, I- Becky? That's uh, what is that?
2: That's not our film. Uh, it's not, It's Universal. I don't know. What no, it is?
0: I don't even know.
1: All right, well, Becky. Fast and the Furious. Now that they are pivoting into Fast and the Furious presents, and they're expanding <laughs> their universe, this is a this is a, a big new thing. And i mean fast and the Furious could present episodes of Wrong Real for all we know in the future. But uh, what what is your your opinion of the future of the Fast and the Furious franchise? Because these movies obviously uh, make <laughs> fuckloads of money.
0: But, but you, Paramount. Sorry. I just want to let you know. Oh, it's Paramount.
1: Paramount so Sonic. Your husband might Yeah, uh, I, he's not working
2: on that movie. Okay. No. I, I thought it was Paramount, <laughs> but I'm like, I can't Ooh. say Paramount. I don't think it is. Yeah. It's Universal.
1: Yeah, Paramount. Yeah. Paramount, they've, uh, well, I, I, when it comes to Paramount, even though they're one of the most historic studios of all time, and I've got so much sentimental affection for just the logo, the brand, the film history, when it comes to buy, sell, or hold, oh, in Paramount, sell, sell, what? sell. Oh,
0: <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> all, all no. The Fucking them was great. Mission Impossible, Star Trek. They've got a lot of good stuff. They just
1: lost Bad Robot over to Warner Brothers, so yeah, that's going to change things quite a a bit. But Becky, where do you stand? Buy, sell, or hold on the Fast and the Furious franchise? Wow.
2: Um, I think Hobbs and Shaw might be the first movie... In, that I actually want to see. So <laughs> but for a while because I, I actually uh I w- watched the first few Fast and the Furious movies and then um and then I was out because I thought that they're ridiculous. And then people told me that I think I missed what's the one that everyone said was amazing. Fast so, five um, was the Fast, ten, fast
0: Five rebooted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so where I, really I,
2: I, I never went back and saw five but everyone said it was amazing. But I did so but I went had a screening for six. So I'm like, well I'll go in to see six because everyone says that five is so amazing and it's amazing. And then I thought this is ridiculous when I saw six I'm out so I personally am not a uh, but again I haven't seen all of them so maybe if I did I would become more of a fan but I'm actually am curious to see what these new movies I think that they kind of have an idea of what works and I, this one looks really fun the next one so I'll say hold
1: It's funny how the the beef between Vin Diesel and The Rock has evolved to such a point where they have to give The Rock his own Fast and the Furious spinoff movies just to keep this fucking uh, bad boy going. But Adam, where do you stand? I've never seen the most recent one, the eighth one, where Charlize Theron plays the villain, but I've seen the rest. But I will watch the Charlize Theron one and prep for Hobbs and Shaw. But I have to admit, Hobbs and Shaw, it could be like... Dumb fun, but like like dumb fun, like where like you want to drink like a six pack of beer and eat potato chips and just have like swap high. Five. I, there's a person in a trailer recently. He screamed at the end of it, "Yes to all of it!" And I was like, "All right, that's the perfect
0: response. Yes to yeah. all of it." Yeah, I remember seeing that in the in a the theater, and some guy went uh, after one of the the action sequences. I just heard him go, "Woo!" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "That's your audience right yeah, there." hundred um, percent. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think I've seen them all. I, I've had fun with most of them. I mean, yeah, it start, the second one, I think the third one actually is underrated. I think it's a decent little Tokyo standalone. Drift. Tokyo Drift. watched I think the if hip- you just watch, it's like Tokyo stand-up. Drift. Yeah, yeah it's fun, I just, cool Yeah, I
2: heard that's that like cult status, right?
0: Yeah, it's just like this fun little, it doesn't, actually Vin Diesel does have a post-credits little appearance, which is kind of cool. But other than that, it has no connection to, uh, to the other films, what's well, got the but Japanese
1: four, dude who like had some weird continuity thing where he like yes. dies and gets resurrected in order to appear in the yeah. other movie? They 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 have some ridiculous, far-flung explanation as to how yeah. the the order in which the stories take place.
0: Yeah, they they actually are yeah right. There's a chronology that's not the chronology of of the of the number system because they wanted so, it to be in uh, five and six. Right, exactly. And, and it's also, why is Vin Diesel in Japan at the end of that movie? Like, with that appearance, that that comes into play later. So, yeah, I think starting with Five, they become, yes, they become almost like superheroes. They become, uh, but I think in a way, though, if you can, you know, if you can sort of just watch them for what they are, they're very good popcorn entertainment movies. They're not, They're not deep in any way. But they're they're entertaining. They're good late night movies for someone like me just to sit back and relax, you know, and watch at night. And uh, I think it's it's going strong yeah. in many regards. Critics seem to think that they're largely getting better as they go. At least from the fifth film on, they seem to be. And they make gained. a billion dollars a pop make, worldwide at a yeah. minimum. Seems like every movie. And frankly, the target audience for these movies, which is you know, it, um, probably isn't us, right? <laughs> it's younger. It's Mikael.
1: This is Mikhail's yeah. favorite franchise. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, but I, am uh, curious to see it. I, I like The Rock.
1: The Rock's yeah. fucking awesome. Jason Statham's fucking awesome. Against. I don't like it. And they him, got like them. the like the Maori thing with like the like the ancient weapons. I, I I will be there opening day with a smile on my face, hope hoping for the best. But uh, yes, yeah, so I
0: would. Buy, I would say I would buy with this. I think it's not something that you can bet against. I think that the audience is there, and it, they will keep coming out. Um, for these types of movies because they actually – they're the kind of movies that young people want to see on a big screen. They want to see in IMAX. They they deliver on the action and adventure in a way that, that people are willing to go out and pay 20 bucks to see them in the theater. Honestly,
1: I might agree with the buy. If they were to start spinning off and creating a, a shared universe of action movies and introducing a bunch of new characters, where it's just yeah. over-the-top action movies that feel like superhero movies but aren't quite superhero movies – yeah, I mean, Fast and Furious Presents, you could come up with 100 fucking characters that fit right in there. You could do one set in Indonesia and get all these crazy Indonesian actions. Like you could, you could have that label slapped on the top of a million different kinds of action movies that are all kind of loosely interconnected. So, yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Bye. But, Becky, yeah. The Conjuring extended universe, which I don't see most of these movies with all the Annabelles and the nuns and et cetera. I've seen Conjuring 1 and 2. And that might be it in terms of the conjuring shared universe, but this—they just keep cranking these fuckers out, like one or two a year. It seems like. Yeah. Where do you stand on this shared universe? By seller. I
2: love, 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 love it. I'm all in on all of these films. I'm one of the people that see everything. I was supposed to see Annabelle on Monday, but I missed out because. Um, my husband has plans, so I can't go to the screening, so I'm going to pay to see it next week. Um, I seen every single one of these films. Some of them are not as great as others, but <laughs> most, I would say that like 80% of them are pretty fantastic. Every once in a while you get one that's not great. The last Conjuring movie, um, but, well, the Nun movie, I hated that movie. Um, and then the last Annabelle movie I didn't like, but the one before I thought was fantastic. Uh, so I'm I'm all in on these. I will see every single one. I have friends that will see every single one. I'm by on this one. This is this speaks to me. This is all me. Bye. Beautiful. I will see any iteration they make. <laughs> whatever you, whatever doll you want to make or any. And I'm I just heard they're gonna remake. Uh, they're gonna not remaking that. They're doing another paranormal and. Um, that uh, and I, they said that it's gonna be the last one, and people are laughing about that because they're like, "Is this really gonna be the last one?" And I'm sure they're gonna make another one in 20 years or in 10 years or whatever. I'm all in on the next paranormal movie. Well, the first I one they made
1: loved, for like $35,000 and it grossed like 150 million. I was like, "Wow!" It, all right, that's yeah, that mean, one outperformed.
2: <laughs> but I've loved all the paranormal movies except for one, and the third one I think is a masterpiece, and I love the first one too. And um, I've actually, I think there's one of all of them. I think there's might be six or seven of them, and one that I didn't like so i am anytime they want to make a movie i'm in so yes bye bye bye
0: what about you adam
2: part bye
0: <laughs> uh, believe it or not i have not seen any of these films yet oh watch and, the conjuring uh, was, the conjuring kicks ass. yeah i i was gonna ask you guys because i know that the that the annabelle films are like prequels to the conjuring is that correct
2: yeah, they are, because so, the, the two Paranormal Investigators, um, that was, like, a story they had uh, before these Conjuring movies happened. That was something that they explored, because they, they follow some of these right. Paranormal Investigators, and this is, uh, they have uh, so the do doll that's in their, like, in their, like,
0: Yeah, I know generally what the movies are about. I just haven't gotten around to watching them. So do you think I should watch them in release order, in or is there, like, a chronological... Chronolo- chronological order that I should view them to sort of get a sense of I would say of- watch
1: the conjuring because yeah. it has a very strong yeah. chance of getting you hooked because it's it. it's okay. actually a scary movie. I bit my tongue several times. I had to get out of my bed because my yeah. iPad was too scary. I had to be able to like stand back from the T V. Like it, it it got me.
0: Okay.
2: The first conjuring, yeah, I'm,
0: yeah, I'm looking amazing. here on uh, Wikipedia under the the conjuring universe page and it says so there's conjuring 1 and 2 and then there's conjuring 3 which is currently filming then there's annabelle annabelle creation and annabelle comes home which is is in pre-production or no pre- oh
2: yeah sorry so the first annabelle was great the second one was awful okay. and then this third one i don't know if it'll be good or not yep. but uh, and the annabelles you can see separately there it's there are they're other than the investigators yeah. there are they're a Hobbs not... and
0: shaw spin-off yeah the nun and the untitled nun sequel <laughs> And then it says there's two other films, The Curse of La Llorona. La Llorona. That-
2: I heard that was awful, too, yeah, though, yeah, actually. I, that I didn't see that one because I heard it was really bad. And <laughs> actually, I don't know. Actually, now that I'm, I, I'm not sure I'm not into the Nun sequel, I hated the Nun so much. <laughs> so much hate. Yeah,
1: the Nun was spooky but, and Conjuring too. but I, I don't need any Nun movies. You know, bar, it was so just I got my most the, important this, question for y'all when it comes yeah. to buy, sell, hold, bull, or bear. We'll start with Becky, the Star Trek franchise.
2: Oh my gosh, I just, I just want to buy. I just want to buy. <laughs> I know, I know. This might be too. This is sentimental of a. I'm gonna cry. Uh, I, I want this franchise to continue. I just, I just. Love this franchise so much. It's such a big part of like uh, of just my whole life and like what it stands for. And I just want to see more and more content. I'm sad that these films are uh, killing it at the box office. I thought the Star Trek Beyond is actually in my top five favorite Star Trek films of all time, and I think that might be surprising to some, but I loved it. Um, and so I want to see another Star Trek film. I want to see Chris Pine as Kirk and continue that route. Um, I want to see this Quentin Tarantino uh, film. Um, I don't know if that's the smartest move on buy because I' they're, they're not apparently capturing. The thing is is that they're, it's not uh, tremendously popular internationally. And that's, I think the big hole, if it was something, you know, powerhouse like Spock,
1: of it's like 87 million box office, like 78 was domestic.
2: Well, they didn't really release yeah. I mean, uh, a different landscape. Obviously back then, a different
1: time. But, but Star then, Trek did, yeah. is popular here, less so abroad.
2: Yeah. Western films didn't release in the eighties internationally. So that's a hard one to do, but yeah, but it, it definitely isn't something that uh, it's, it's, people know it some people know it internationally, um, obviously through syndication and all that. but i I just sentimentally, I guess I, I just have to say by because I it, this I believe in what the franchise stands for the utopian future and um, you know everyone can belong to it and and the future we all get along and what's the future that we hope to have. Um I just love it so much. and I just think that the core the core philosophy of this franchise about friendship and about, um, you know, um, acceptance and tolerance. It's just, I don't know, it's a show about it. It's, like, about ideas and, you know, what it means to do the right thing. And I could gush and gush and gush. So um, I just love it so much. And so, yes, I have to say bye. About, I know it's probably not...
0: What about you, Mr. Yeah. Reckhoff? I, I would agree largely with Becky. I, I am a, a Star Trek fan for life, and I will always try and watch everything that has the title Star Trek in it. Um, you know, I've said this before, not all, all Star Trek is created equal. I mean, there are good and bad episodes of the original series. or good and bad episodes of The Next Generation and every show that came after. Um, but I still would say that for me, even bad Star Trek for me is better than most television, or at least it was for a long time. We're in a new age of television right now, but... For me, even a bad – growing up, a bad episode of Next Generation was still better than most of what was on TV in my opinion. So I, I just yeah, – Yeah, if you were channel yeah.
1: surfing and you stumbled upon it, it didn't matter if it was in the middle of the episode or where you were, what was going on. You knew it was going to be pretty good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I also I just think it's like – I don't know. I feel like somehow it was like – in eight. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's part of my DNA now. Like, yeah. I think it's informed by like political views on life and like who I want to be as a person and how I want the future to be and, you know, what I hope the future will be like. And I just think, I think it's just so powerful. And, um, and there's so many just, just the, the morality and, um, and what the nature of the human heart is. And I, I, I just think it's just such a wonderful franchise. And, and I, and I'm hoping because of, you know, I want to have hope for humanity that this, is something that lasts forever.
0: Yeah, and I think using your analogy, James, about the stock market, I think if you look at the history of Star Trek over 50 plus years, there have been many ups and downs, right? Times where it's like almost ready to go bankrupt, but somehow the fans keep it alive, and then it has a resurgence, and then it goes down again for a little while, then it comes back up again. There's yeah. been this, just like a stock, it has all these ups and downs, it's a roller coaster ride, um, but it never... It will never die, you know. I don't think it'll ever die. It'll always get past those those sort of valleys and find a new peak again. A good example is just if you look at like the mid two thousands after Enterprise went off the air and after that, you know, Insurrection came out, which was probably my least favorite Star Trek movie. Um, there was this period where it's it really tip. felt it really felt like Star Trek was done. You know, oh, a, I mean, a the a Nemesis. A, a, you mean? Yeah. Sorry, Nemesis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that came out in 2002, and I think um, Enterprise went off the air in 2004. I'm, I'm trying to remember, but... Uh, yeah, there, there was a five-year gap
1: between yeah. the show and the reboot by J-
0: Bad Robot. Right, and I think but that was a great example of where Bad Robot's reboot really reinvigorated the fr- franchise and sort of reintroduced it to the world. And it, it was like, all of a sudden, Paramount had another hit on their hands and a new franchise on their hands, so... To me, there will always be those opportunities for someone to come along and reignite the franchise. Maybe Picard will be that next iteration. I mean, a lot of people love. We've talked about this. A lot of people love. Uh, just, I'm a fan of Discovery. I think they've had some uh, really rocky road in the beginning, but overall, I think there's there's potential still there. Um, but I, I will certainly admit that it's not the strongest Star Trek series that has been on the you know that has aired. Um, Maybe, but, but, to, but to take but. the
1: stock analogy further, we yeah. are coming upon a buying opportunity where, if Alex Kurtzman runs the franchise into the ground and drives the price down, what? that would it's present happening. presents a buying opportunity for people to resurrect it.
2: What? No, he's not going to make it go into the ground. It's we're, no. I, I want
0: to finish the thought <laughs> because the the even though there's been some mixed reception to Discovery. Uh, It actually has been uh, the most watched, one of the five most watched shows on all streaming platforms all over the world. So it's getting more exposure for Star Trek than any other Star Trek show in the history of the world uh, because it's on Netflix in every other country. So Mm -hmm. it's such broad exposure. And well, it is, (laughs)
1: but now it's not because Amazon scooped up Picard. There's a little bit of a. bidding war, not a bidding war, but like Netflix wasn't willing to go above a certain price for a Picard, so, so right. Amazon swooped in, it's like, fuck you, we'll take it, so we'll see how it does on Amazon. Seen.
0: That's all I meant, is it's getting seen, yeah. because uh, this was across any streaming platform, not specific to Netflix, they were saying what are the five most streamed shows, and Discovery was one of them, across all, like Stranger Things is one of them, so it didn't matter what the platform was, they were just sort of going across platforms. And, and my point is just that it's getting seen more than any other show, any other Star Trek show has been in a long time. So that's good for the franchise. And in essence, that would be a buying, a reason to buy, right? Because it actually is getting more exposure because of this new streaming world we're in. You know, it's equivalent to sort of the syndication, um, the invention of syndication in the late 80s when Next Generation was starting to be seen by a whole new audience that probably wouldn't have necessarily seen it or watched it on Primetime cable, sorry, primetime network TV. So um, we're just finding new ways to reach audiences now, which is it's good for the franchise. You know, whether you like it or not, it's it's a good that's a good sign. But yeah, hopefully Picard will will give a lot of us fans our age something that we want, which is a continuation. I mean, Michael Chabon's
1: of- a fucking brilliant writer. I mean, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is one of the best novels I've ever read, and the fact that he's so intimately involved with Picard, I at least have high hopes, but I don't like Alex Kurtzman, so we'll see. But I'm, like, it's hard to separate rumor from reality because there's so much bad blood out there right now, and there's so many. there's so much bullshit with the people who don't like Star Trek, where they're constantly spreading false rumors about test screenings, yeah. etc. I've decided I'm not going to pay attention really to any of that stuff. I'm just going to wait and see if Picard's a good show, and if it's great, awesome. That's a win. A good Picard show is a win for everybody, irrespective mm-hmm. of people's thoughts about the direction yeah. of the franchise. And also... Still got Orville season three coming our way, so no matter what happens, I got the Orville coming my way. So I, I can, as long as I have a version of something resembling Star Trek that I like, then then <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a happy that's boy. What
2: I, that's what I needed to do this summer, is because I watched the first five episodes of the Orville, and then I just like I, I had too much stuff going on, and it never continued, and I and I loved it, and then I but I just had to stop because I had so much other stuff going on. But I I need to catch up. On season that show. two
1: is like wrapping yourself up in a blanket and getting in a rocking chair in front of a fire. It's oh, see- I. So season much. 2 is, uh, is, is and, a ton and, of fun.
0: And Season 2 is even more connected to Star Trek with all of with the Jonathan Frakes episodes. And you know Ronald yeah. D. Moore is one of the producers, right? So there's so many people. A lot of veterans, yeah. Uh, well, Brandon oh, Brackett. Uh, I forget who it is, which one it is. But one of the next-gen...
2: Um, yeah, I missed my homework this summer. My yeah. summer homework. The uh, Nemesis came out in 2002, by the way. So uh, yeah. that was seven years from... Uh, Just as for the record, I know this is not what we're talking about, but I'm all in on Discovery. I'm one of the biggest fans out there of discovery i cannot wait i'm hoping comic-con has another this is the last two years they had like a a big exhibit of all the costumes and it was amazing um they actually have one right now in la for the paley center but i'm it's kind of crazy to do that right now so i'm hoping to do it at the comic-con if they do it again i just love discovery so much i love the characters i love um i love the season um and uh, I am one of the big defenders of the show. I think it's uh, fantastic. And I know a lot of people hate it, but I love it.
1: Well, you are my guest, so I will not contradict you here. But if anyone wants to hear my thoughts on Discovery, they can check yeah, out my YouTube I know, channel. I know your yeah.
2: thoughts. Yeah, I,
0: I, that I, certainly, I, yeah I, I certainly am not a hater of it. I think it's, it's got a great cast. And I think they've got incredible. I love the visual look of it. I think it's so cinematic. I, the the special effects are, are just top-notch. It just really feels like you're watching a movie in, in many cases. And uh, yeah, I just think they've had some some episodes that have been a little rocky that have sort of concerned me. But overall, I think they have... And again, I've said this many times, Next Generation was very rocky in the beginning too. It took a long time for them to really get their footing and, and sort of have a consistency of quality across the board. And uh, I, I'm certainly not in any way giving up on it and I'm I'm excited to see what comes next. Again, Star Trek for me, as I said, I'll always come back to it. Well with Discovery also try. it's a
1: weird thing where even if the show sucks, it still's a win for me because bashing Discovery is great for traffic on YouTube. I hope for a great show. <laughs> but if the show's a if the third season's a disaster, I'll still cover it because I it gives me awesome traffic.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well you're still I just have to say that your your YouTube videos are pretty fair though. Like I don't agree with some of the stuff you say, but you are you definitely aren't like all in on like the you you give the stuff that's good you give you know you say that why you think it's good and what's bad. Of season
1: two that was particularly strong. Like they had a couple right around like eight, nine, or ten yeah. where I was like, huh, all right, let's see. But it was those early yeah. episodes when they're talking about Spock's Oof. like severe empathy deficits. I was like, all right, you're some undergrad who's trying to score points with your annoying professor and i guess maybe i have severe empathy deficits as well because i was unable to relate to their shitty fucking screenplays they were writing for that show I, this is the writing that really drives me up the wall and the terminology and the way they discuss things but we will save that for another day if yeah. discovery bounces back and becomes fucking like the greatest Star Trek show ever, perhaps, Stranger Things Have Happened, we will reconnect on Wrong Reel and discuss. But um, I've run out of franchises to pick your brains about. So as a way of closing things down, I just want you all to be an angel investor. Put on your investor at one okay. last time and handpick a franchise that you would breathe new life into and make the strongest franchise. And what, what in your mind is... Um, uh, something that's either been uh, like disregard, like kind of discarded or ignored or neglected, but you want to, as a producer, say, you know what? I'm gonna assign the best writers, the best cast, the best director, the best everything, and give it the resources it needs. Make, be an angel investor. Create the next Facebook when it comes to franchises.
2: Well, uh, <sighs> what? I think. Go ahead. Oh no, I I feel like it's I'm I'm just hopeful that that's actually already happened with. Terminator Dark Fate that's ah, coming out in no, that's November. Fair, that's fair. Because I feel like Tim Miller's amazing James I mean if I had to think like a year ago what my dream would be it would be that James Cameron would come back and make and uh, be a big part of the making of the story of a new Terminator film that he would continue after T2 that he would have Sarah Linda Hamilton come back that Arnold Schwarzenegger would have a role um, that he would bring on an amazing director if he couldn't if he didn't want to direct it himself and I just am so I cannot I'm gonna explode into confetti I'm so excited (laughs) about this movie so I'm just I cannot wait. and I think like a year ago, this would have been the one I would have said I hoped and dreamed. And, and I, I'm just hoping that it, that this happens because I want to see more Terminator films. It's, it's the franchise that I love um, as much as Star Trek. And it means so much to me. Um, and I think your audience knows how much it means to me. So um, I think that's the, probably the one. I know it's kind of a cheat because it's actually possibly – but it's it hasn't opt- happened yet. Terminator is yeah. your
1: favorite movie, so it's totally fair. <laughs> so. yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Or are you, Adam, angel investor. What, what are you going to breathe new uh, life into?
0: Well, something I've always wanted is uh, is I've always wanted James Cameron to do a series of True Lies movies. I always thought that could be a really fun take on the James Bond franchise if he oh. were to carry it through. It doesn't necessarily have to be all about Arnold Schwarzenegger either. It could be there was someone who was someone had written a spec script where Eliza Dushku was grown up and now taking on you know what she about
1: had gone spinoff like episode.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I He's have a small dick. Anymore. It's Aww. pathetic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you, know, you know, there's a there's a a show that as a kid I liked a cartoon called Robotech, and there's also a book series Robotech, and I always thought that that is a missed opportunity for a huge live action franchise. That it, there's such material there um, for a sci-fi, you know, an epic, big budget sci-fi series that I'm surprised no one's really tried to uh, tackle it. The books are very good, actually. If you've ever, I read them as a kid, but um, it's uh, it's something that I think people love sci-fi people love action people love you know all that stuff so it, it's it's sitting there ready to be adapted uh with the right handling it could be a pretty cool uh a, a cool for, you know it, it would have to have the right writers the right directors all of that but i think it's there's potential there for
1: me right. i'm all in if you have the, once again Get the right writers, right directors, right yeah. talent, dust off Robert E. Howard's old short stories, and give us a goddamn Conan franchise. I want to. I want a, oh, I want yeah. a great Conan mm. franchise all the way. And that's a, that's a franchise that has fallen on hard times, but yeah. that is all the time we have for today, but I can't thank y'all enough for ranting and raving about all these franchises with me. I, I, more and more, I want to do these kind of games and scenarios on the podcast because they require no preparation, and they're kind of fun just because they're so unpredictable in terms of where they might go, whether it's the Kenneth Mouse Macho episode or the too long, too short or just right episode. I enjoy creating (laughs) these little game show scenarios. So I'm going to be doing a lot more of them in the future, but Becky, where can people find you online? If they want to talk to you about Terminator, Star Trek, whatever.
2: Oh, uh, you know, first I thought you were going to make Adam and I compete against Star Trek trivia. And I'm like, Oh my God, to pound, to prank. Like I was like ready for like, let's go Adam. Um, but (laughs) luckily, uh, you didn't do Star Trek trivia. And uh, so that would have been a hardcore. Uh, You can find me um, on Twitter, which is... um my uh, handle is Hollywood Minotaur, and that's Hwood Minotaur. I'm actually launching a brand new website this week, which I'm really excited about. It'll be beckydeanna.com. The old beckydeanna.com still exists, but a new one will be a new look, a fresh look. It'll have a ton of links. I think I've done like 27 wrong Real episodes, so a lot of traffic to your website, uh, Jamie, to, to look at wrong Real episodes. But um, a, a brand new shiny website will be up this week. I just saw the preview today. I'm excited about it. Um, but it also will be up by the time this episode, I'm sure. I mean, uh, is launched. Well, we will promote and, the ever-living um, shit out of it. Yeah, <laughs> and then additionally, want to say that Spider-Man: Far From Home comes out July 2nd. Um, the embargo will I'm um, soon will be lifted, and I think in a Premier's week. is Wednesday I, next week, or? It, the premiere is this Wednesday. Um, yes. And so I think the embargo might be lifted the the end of the week. I'm not exactly sure yet. So I don't want to give any, and I don't want to spoil anything, but I do want to say, um, it is my favorite Spider-Man film. It is also my favorite Marvel film. I loved this movie. It's romantic and it's just so much fun and it's, it's hilarious. And I just loved it. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, you're already going to see it anyway, but please see it. And I'm super excited because we have a press release coming out this week that'll talk about our amazing promotional campaign, the biggest promotional campaign that I've ever worked on in my whole career of 20 years. I'm very proud of it um, and, and proud to be on the partnership team for uh, Sony Pictures. And so we will be touting what we have accomplished this week, which will be exciting. And then additionally, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood comes out July 26th. And please go see it. And um, it's my most anticipated
1: to- movie of the year. There's no close second.
2: Yeah, this is gonna be. I mean, this is a. This is this is it's a special movie, and we're so we're so proud and so lucky that this is um that's gonna be part of our studio legacy. Um, we just it's this is just a special film, and I can't wait for everybody to see it. Um, and th- that's it. So to that's, that's, so see those movies and check me out on Twitter and ask me if I ever want to talk about Star Trek or Bergman or um, Terminator, I'm here for you.
1: <laughs> Mr. Rakoff, where can people find you online if they want to talk about Matthew Modine's electoral <laughs> prospects or whatever the case might
0: be? Uh, I'm at Adam Rackoff on Twitter. That's my name, one word. And... <laughs> um, and that's my only social media presence. But, yeah, I try to follow anybody, anybody that follows me. So if you follow me, I'll follow you back. And um, one other little thing that we're doing, thanks to Becky, is uh, we're working with Sony, uh, the home video department, and the press ah! department to do a little promotion around the 35th anniversary of Matthew Modine's film, Birdie, which he starred in with Nicolas Cage. It came out the same year as Star Trek Three. Alan Parker, baby. He's a neglected yep. director. Totally, Yes. Such a great, diverse, eclectic, you know, career, and uh, really, in many regards, probably one of. He's still alive. He teaches in in England. Yeah, I revisited um, Angel Heart recently. I was like, holy oh, shit! Yeah. Or
1: the like, commitments. I mean, yeah, he or Pink Floyd, The
0: Wall. He he's the shit. He's very similar to Kubrick in that every film is sort of its own thing. You know, they don't they don't fall into one category. They're very unique. You know, he sort of tackled each film as. For what it was, and uh, anyway, um, so the Blu-ray is coming out this Tuesday from Sony uh, Pictures, and uh, it's the first time Birdie has been, you know, remastered in high definition for Blu-ray. So it's coming out, and we're trying to do some interviews, and we might, we might be doing some giveaways on Matthew's Twitter feed. So Yay. Uh, follow him <laughs> at Matthew <laughs> Birdie. Yeah, Adam and I worked,
2: uh, yeah. put our minds together and try yeah. to do something fun.
0: And we might be doing something even more with you guys because we found out that Sony is also releasing his film uh, Pacific Heights with uh, nice. Michael Keaton and Melanie Griffith. It's also coming out on Blu-ray July twenty-first or seventh, something like that. Um, so another classic Modine film coming to Blu-ray, uh, which is which is odd because the film was I think originally released by Fox in the theaters. Um, not sure how the well then it was produced by Morgan Creek I think, and I think maybe they might with Sony now I'm not sure but it's Mm. one of those oddities with you know movies where they have one company distributes it and then you know the the catalog rights go on to another studio and I'm not sure how it ended up at Sony okay but anyway it's coming out (laughs) and um so maybe we'll do some stuff around that as well uh but yeah so uh check I think Tuesday check Matthew's feed because we might be doing some fun um giveaways if you retweet and uh
1: yeah yeah he's got great he's twitter saying. feed i loved all that footage from vision quest recently i was like fuck yeah i do that is uh muy macho well we that's hope you all have enjoyed this episode well, oh wait fire away. You yeah.
2: a, you, just one last thing we forgot to mention that it's the star trek uh, search for spock this is the 35th anniversary it just happened june yes. 1st 1984 and we neglected to mention that sorry
0: that's that's why we did happy this anniversary script. star yeah. trek
2: search for spock
0: yeah <laughs> that's <why> we, it's <laughs> It's, he's listening. Star Trek, Star Trek Search for Spock. Did you hear us? <laughs> uh, it's also, I think, in December, The um, well, it was already the forty. It's the 40th anniversary of the motion picture. Which, which is was covered
1: beautiful. over at the uh, our buddies yeah. over at Film, 8, Film 89.
0: And uh, there's another, I think there's another anniversary as well. I'm trying to remember now. I'm blanking, but... Um, I mean, you're bound every year you're going to have an anniversary for something. There's enough movies and shows out there. This
1: fall is the fifth anniversary of Wrong Reel. So I'm going to get oh, buck ass yeah. naked and I uh, might have to pop. just do a, a naked episode. You can't can't come on unless you're going to talk about naked people and be naked in the, in the flesh. But yeah, I'm looking like to plan I something know, special. I,
0: I know what you need to do. You need to have the original founders of Wrong Reel back.
1: I'll, I'll say this: If Becky gets say. me into a early screening of um, um, "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood," I would at least invite he who m- must not be named, in good faith, to be on the show again for the fifth anniversary. So he uh, may not
0: take the I offer. But. He might not accept,
1: but I, I would make a I would make a good faith invitation if right. I could get into an early screening of "Once Upon a you know Time in Hollywood."
2: Baby, I, I never even thought about asking about that. I will ask about that, and you don't even have to do the other thing. And I'll, <laughs> well, the offer remains on the table. I'll tape. go with him. <laughs> <laughs> Adam's
0: like, I was plus one. Yeah, I'm his date.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm, I'm not Let afraid of mandates. That. I've taken Adam as a mandate before. before I, I took Adam as a mandate to Hal Hartley's Ned Rifle. So uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm, right. Good. Yeah. I, I'm very broad-minded when it comes to screening. That was
0: like a thousand-dollar ticket, right? Something it was. Like that. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was absolutely a thousand-dollar movie ticket because of the Kickstarter campaign.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, at any but rate, it was for
0: a good cause. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a rating review on iTunes. If you want to hear more about, you know, sex with watermelons and all sorts of lovely things, you can go to my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I just posted a review for Dark Season 2, which is one of my all time favorite shows, at least of the last 10 years. When it comes to sci fi that's doing something great right now, Dark is the shit. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Colbrax. But can't thank you enough for listening to this episode. Hope everyone enjoyed it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards.
2: Ain't like it used to be, but. Uh it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips together and blow